This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also down-regulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Miami firefighter and Task Force 2 member Timmy Gleason. Now, Timmy is an immensely respected member of the special operations community when it comes to the world of firefighting. But unbeknownst to many, he has an incredibly powerful mental health story that he tells on this episode. As a young boy, he lost his home in a hurricane here in Florida and ultimately joining Task Force 2 responded to multiple hurricanes during his career. So we discuss a host of topics, from his journey into the fire service, responding to the Haitian earthquake, the Surfside Claps, and Hurricane Ian, his own powerful mental health story, overcoming addiction, post-traumatic growth, firefighter fitness, and so much more. And before we get to this incredibly powerful and important conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find, because this is a free library of almost 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Timmy Gleason. Enjoy. Well, Timmy, I want to start by saying, firstly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. There, Your name has come up numerous times. That's what I love about some of my closing questions. Who else do you recommend to come on? And we are finally sitting down. So welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm actually uh, 
pretty excited about uh, where we're going to go, where, where we're going to end up today. Absolutely. So we're well, speaking of ending up, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am in, uh, in Miami, Florida. I live in uh, a suburb of, uh, called Kendall, the Kendall area. And it's way out west of uh, in Dade County. And uh, I work for um, the city of Miami uh, Fire Department, where I've been for the last 20, I believe, 25. Well, I'm coming up on 25 years now. So I would love to start at the very beginning because I know that still includes South Florida. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay. Uh, I was born in February of 1972, Groundhog Day, which for those that know me will understand the uh, the irony in that. Um, it's pretty funny that I was born on Groundhog Day, but I was. Um, I, I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and, uh, we moved, my mom and I moved to Miami, Florida when I was very young. Uh, I, I was about a year and a half old. We moved from Brooklyn, just my mom and I, uh, down here to Miami. Uh, we lived for a short period of time on Miami beach with my grandfather. And then my mom was able to get on her feet and, uh, get us our own place and that's kind of where life started was in the uh in the kendall area and a little bit further south in the homestead area i grew up in the homestead area where i attended uh junior high and high school and then uh and then moved back up to the uh to the kendall area after hurricane andrew hit south florida my mom and i lost lost our home and pretty much everything in it. Uh, so we moved back up to the, to the Kendall area. Was it homestead that you lived in during that hurricane? Yes. Cause I remember, um, when I look back, I mean that when we think of Andrew, I mean, obviously it, it kind of went up the state, but homestead, I think, if, remind, please correct me if I'm wrong, was a lot of trailers as well. So there was a huge amount of devastation and loss of life in that particular area of South Florida. It was brutal. Um, the devastation was, you know, at, at that time was pretty much the worst that anybody had ever seen. And then as far as uh, deaths go, there was a ton of uh, a ton of people that stayed in their homes. Um, and there was a very big migrant community that uh, for either whether it be lack of education or whether it be, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of them stayed and out deep in deep in Homestead. There's the Homestead Air Force Base. Well, around the Homestead Air Force Base, there was a lot of uh, low income housing where where migrant uh, you know like a migrant community where they where they would live and the, the buses would pick them up in the morning and take them to the field so they could go to work. While well, they all stayed, a lot of them stayed in their in their homes and uh, out in that area. It, you know, the wind was clocked at like 150, 160 miles an hour at, at some points. And uh, there was a lot of devastation and a lot of loss of life out, out in that area. They they don't believe that they ever came up with a true accurate number of how many people uh, ended up, you know, dying because of that storm. 
I think it was Andrew, if I'm not mistaken. It was a while ago now I spoke to him, but there's a guy, Johnny Mack, who's a firefighter north of you. I forget which department it was, actually. But we sat down and did an interview. He's actually one of the the top-tier guys in the CrossFit um, organization as well. But he was a lineman originally. So hearing his story of them literally trying to connect power lines after that was crazy. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of became the Wild West down there, too. Um, you know, law and order was got pretty crazy. And uh, people were, obviously, you know, people were, say what you want, but people were trying to live, man. And, and you, you can't really judge somebody when you got little ones at home and you're trying to, you're trying to feed them or, you know, keep them, uh, keep them thriving and alive. So people were, were stealing generators. They were stealing food. They were stealing, uh, you know, they were crawling up in people's yards and stealing stuff, uh, from their busted out homes. I mean, it was, it was bad. People were getting killed left and right on the street. It was, uh, <laughs> it was a rough, a rough go of it for a while. And, and the fact that we had no power for so long, you know, just added insult to injury. I, I can't even imagine what it was like for those guys um, stringing lines afterwards, you know, but it had to be, had to be really tough, but even, 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 uh, you know, ice delivery people had it tough. They were getting robbed and bread delivery people were getting robbed and shot. It was, it was, um, it was a rough go. They ended up bringing in the, bringing in the national guard at some point. Well, you've been to multiple deployments, and we'll get into that, some of which were hurricanes. Um, with this lens now that you have in 2023, what were the you know, the, the shortcomings, the failings that were happening for that particular incident back then? I believe like anything else, I think it was back then, we just didn't know what we didn't know. And I, I would like to think that you know, a lot of the things we did was because we didn't know. And I mean, I, I remember, you know, I was significantly younger then, but I remember them telling telling people, oh, you can, you know, tape a big X on your window with with duct tape or with uh, packing tape and, and your glass will, you know, stay. It'll, it'll break, but it'll stay and stay in place. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, I mean, when the wind is up over a hundred miles an hour, there's nothing that's going to save that glass except if it's impact glass, you know? And I, so I, I think it was just, we didn't know what we didn't know. And I think that contributed to a lot of, a lot of people getting hurt. Um, a lot of, a lot of property loss, you know? Um, and it, it's funny because uh, the storms that I respond to now, um, I don't know that all of them are that much more powerful, but, I, it seems like when I see the devastation now, looking at it, I don't know if it's because I'm looking at it through an older an older man's eyes, but the devastation now just seems so much greater, you know, um, so much more widespread. But I can tell you that whether it's a uh, a slower storm that that that's coming and we're you know we're being told that it's going to possibly affect our area, or whether it's a it's a storm that they're deploying me to. Um, I have a very big, uh, I don't want to say fear, but I would say very healthy, uh, respect for, for storms as they come in now. Um, you know, the, the, the overwhelming feeling of you may possibly lose your house and lose pictures and, and, you know, magazines and shit that you've had. Oh, sorry. Uh, can no, I... no, you can swear. Trust me. I'll, I'll <laughs> say fuck. There we go. Now we're even. So okay. if you go, <laughs> so, uh, you know the thought that you may lose something that that you've had since you were 
however old, you know, and you can't replace it. To me now, as I'm an older man, it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's almost petrifying, man. It's scary because, uh, losing everything like that is, is not, uh, not an easy, uh, easy task. You know, it, it, I can remember it being significantly hard, uh, trying to get back all the stuff that we lost and, and realizing over a period of time, Oh shit. I lost, we lost that in the storm. We don't have it anymore. You know, um, now as I'm an older man, I, I can only imagine how hard that would, how hard that would be. I was thinking the other day, cause we had, I forget, I mean, I lose track of the the ones that are named that don't hit us, obviously, because there's so many. But being in the States for 20 years, most of which was in Florida, I was at Orlando, then Hialeah, then out west for a few years, and then back yeah, this area for the last 15. It seems to me that because we like, or we, it's not us, they like to sensationalize so much in the media to the point where you know, you'll have the reporter acting like they're in the middle of a storm and there's a dude walking their dog behind. Yeah. Um, the, the, the danger is that the, that irresponsible reporting causes like a cry-wolf situation. And therefore, when there is a true, genuine one absolutely bearing down on us, we're so kind of, you know, overwhelmed by all the other kind of hype stories that people aren't able to really discern which is the one we should be taking seriously. Yeah, I got I to totally agree with you. Um and even, you know, if you even you could look at the one of the most recent storms uh, for Myers Beach, um, as that was coming towards us um, here in Florida, I, I, they kind of downplayed it. I remember I remember hearing that, yeah, it's going to make landfall as uh, as, you know, a one or two or possibly a three, but it's not going to get any higher than that. And, and I think that kind of lulled people into this false state of of security because when we got to fort myers beach i mean we got there within hours of the storm passing through uh we came kind of right in behind it and uh man the the stories that we heard of people riding out the storm or and or getting getting sucked out of their house and them them going one way and their wife or or husband going the other way and not and them not seeing them ever again uh the stories like that that we were being confronted with left and right uh was was ridiculous i mean ridiculous we were walking up to people and they were just constantly telling us uh these stories you know and and we would ask them almost dumbfounded, like, why, why would you stay? You're, 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 you live right on the beach. You know, what, why would you stay? Why would you, why would you choose to do that? And they, they all said the same thing. Huh? We just really didn't think it would be that bad. Or, or they would tell us we left um, during the last one and it turned out to not be that bad. But what happened was our place got looted and, you know, so, so we ended up losing stuff, not because of the storm, because it got stolen. So we decided that we weren't going to leave this time. And it, it ultimately, for some of them, it, it ultimately caused them, you know, to lose loved ones or to lose their, you know, loved ones to lose them. And it, it was, uh, it was pretty, it was a, it was a rough experience hearing some of those stories. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Um, you know, we were hearing stories of people 
riding their roofs down, you know, as the storm surge was coming in, they were sitting atop their roof and their, their house was floating down the street and they were stuck on the roof screaming for help as the tide was taking them out to sea. You know, um, another story we heard was of a, of a young lady with her mom and her dad that, you know, the screen, uh, the, the sliding glass door busted water rushed in and, uh, from the time it got from the floor to the ceiling, uh, it was, you know, about six minutes. They were sucked out the front door and ended up watching the storm in their front yard, uh, wrapped in pool noodles, um, the styrofoam pool noodles, holding on to the, the roof ridge of their house, watching the whole storm pass them by. And they, they, you know, they rode the storm out in their front yard, in the water, and she said it was like something like the Wizard of Oz. She said, it, you know, things were flying past. Uh, microbursts were happening. Lightning was crashing. And she couldn't believe that she was she was actually visualizing this stuff, you know. So it, it's it to me. It's it, I, I think it's uh, it goes back to uh, some of that. What you were saying, it's that we hear it or 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 get told and we either think, ah, it's not going to be that bad. Or we see the guy, uh, you know, in the media with, he's standing out in the street, uh, with no shirt on and just shorts holding an American flag and the wind's blowing the flag and the wind's blowing his hair. And he's, you know, like, like rocking on, you know? And so we see that and we go, Oh, this isn't, this ain't going to be bad at all. Well, it turns out that it's, that it's significantly worse, you know? So right before that storm hit, I was interviewing Larry Doyle, and I remember it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, Ian followed right after that. Secondly, my dog actually died during that interview. The kennel called me. Like when I was done with the interview, I got the messages and heartbroken, mate. But I was on Sanibel Island with Larry, and he's um, a very, very revered journalist. He interviewed Nelson Mandela when he first got out. That's kind of the level of respect journalism had while we're on this topic. Um, and so he evacuated with his wife. Um, and then I went down before the storm still and visited one of my friends who's not in Fort Myers, Myers Beach, but it's one of the neighboring fire departments, visited him. And then I went back. Larry's house was, you know, destroyed, Rob and the sur surrounding areas. You know, you see the, the footage of the Fort Myers station that's in what, like five feet of water, the engines flooded, they're pulling all the stuff out of the compartments. But after the fact, it really felt like for anyone who wasn't geographically in that area, like you said, even even after it hit, that it wasn't as big of a deal as it actually was. Now, Rob Ramirez is on the show. He gave an amazing account of what he witnessed with his crew when they first got there. Talk to me about the actual impact. Actually, Rob and I, Rob and I were uh, were partners on that. Actually, again, and I forgot in in all the getting ready for the show. Uh, he, he told me to tell you hi and that, uh, you know, that he had a great time when he was on the show, but, uh, he was actually, him and I were actually, um, what they call uh, rescue team managers for the, for, for the urban search and rescue team, Florida task force two. We, uh, we were counterparts basically. Um, we were the ones in charge of formulating any type of rescue plan, uh, formulating, you know, uh, how we were going to, get people out of the rubble if there was anybody in there. Um, and, you know, uh, we, we were responsible for uh, basically being in charge of the whole rescue uh, component of the, uh, of the task force. So he gave, you know, his portrayal and then, you know, told some of the stories of just the, you know, the immense work that your 
initial team had to do because everyone else was being kind of held back by the hurricane's path. So kind of walk me through that day through your eyes. So our um, the city of Miami is the sponsoring agency for um, for the task force. Uh, so it kind of falls into the hands of our um, our uh, fire department administration to kind of run the team and, and they're the ones who interface uh, the most with with FEMA. So um, we they were getting reports um, you know that that area was was really taken a beating and that uh, storm surge had really come in to the west coast and affected it greatly and we were getting original reports we were getting was uh, that Marco Island um, people were trapped on their roofs people were trapped in their houses and, and Marco is, a, is an elderly beach community um, so our our fire chief um, contacted FEMA and told them listen we're we're close enough to that area where we can kind of and far far enough out west where we can as the storm passes through we're going to kind of slip in behind the storm and and follow the storm up up the coast and we'll we'll you know jump into marco island and, and start doing any type of swift water uh saves that need to be made because half of the team uh that we deployed with was a swift water component as well as a structural collapse component. So it was a very heads up move um, by the fire chief uh, to to figure that out with FEMA. And so they gave us the permission. We, we really can't deploy or can't move without their specific permission, you know? So they, uh, and they don't usually like to put us on the road uh, in the middle of a storm, you know, you can understand why with all the equipment and, and trucks and, and manpower. So, but they, they allowed us, they allowed us to go, uh, as soon as the storm passed through, we, we jumped on the road. Um, and then he made another very heads up decision. The, the half of the team that was swift water headed towards, um, headed towards Marco Island because of the reports that he was getting, uh, they were getting personally, the, uh, our administration and the rest of the team, uh, the, the structural collapse component, we uh, took off towards um, what they were kind of at the time calling Ground Zero, which was Fort Myers Beach. Uh, we got to Fort Myers Beach just a couple hours uh, after after the storm passed through there. And it was funny. We came, not funny, but we came over a, um, like an overpass onto the beach and then came down onto the beach, like on, let's call it Ocean Drive. And it was dead end. We couldn't get any closer um, because of all the all the damage. Uh, but it kind of put us right where we needed to be. The the road died out, like right into the middle of a uh, of a of a neighborhood. And uh, we began our searches in that area. You know, the uh, there was only a few of us, not a few of us, but there was probably thirty or thirty or forty of us there. Um, at that time, because the rest of the team had gone uh, towards Marco, but we immediately started um, grid searches and and kind of pushing into the neighborhoods to see if we could if we could find anybody that was possibly trapped and if if they were just wandering around the streets, which we found a lot of them at that point, if there was any aid that we could get them, and uh, that's pretty much how we spent the first, I would say, probably. 24 to 36 hours doing that and setting up 
uh, a base that we could operate out of plus working with the locals um and uh if i remember correctly we got attached to uh or they got attached to us a uh, a road clearing crew uh they were a bunch of firemen out of uh, jacksonville uh city of jacksonville and uh, man they were like gold because the roads were so just overrun with trees and vehicles and you name it it was blocking the road and these guys had a couple of small skid steers and they had some um you know pulling equipment and and cable and and all kind of, and they just they made a mountain of work go go very smooth and they got us roads open and they got to where we could uh we could punch back in further into the neighborhoods and get in to where we re- really needed to be so um we were the first the first USAR kind of component in that area for, uh, I want to say two and a half, maybe three days, just because everybody that was coming from the North South to us, um, you know, they were having to deal with, with, uh, road damage and, and all that stuff getting into us. So, uh, it took them, it took them, uh, you know, a little bit of time to get to us. And by time, by time, the big, the big lion's share of, of all the teams that responded got to that area. We had already been in, in, in operation for uh, like two or three days. So uh, we were doing a lot of jumping around. That's for sure. We, uh, we did a lot of ground pounding, a lot of, a lot of house searches. Uh, we tried very hard to get with the local municipality and work with them to try to get some of their fire department equipment up and running. Um, our fire chief, uh, you know, gave them the, the aid of our, uh, the city's, uh, logistics crew and they tried to get their, some of their fire trucks running. And it was, uh, it was, it was quite a, quite an operation to see, to talk to the local, to the local mayor and to talk to the local fire chief at the time. Um, it was rough to hear those, those poor guys, you know, cause they were definitely, they had a lot on their hands <laughs> and, you know, they were a little short staffed at the time. Um, but a, a ton of researches, uh, a ton of resources ended up coming into that area where it, we were able to do some seriously good work in that area. I felt very, um, I felt very fulfilled as a, uh, as a rescuer and as a first responder, as we left there, um, I felt that that for me, I mean, there you know, obviously people are going to have other experiences, but for me, that was one of the deployments where I felt I could, I could go home with, with my head held high and know that we did everything we possibly could for that community. You know, there's a lot of deployments happen and we do good work and we help a lot of people, but there's just an overwhelming feeling of, uh, I don't want to say unfulfilledness, but there's an overwhelming feeling of man i we, i just didn't do enough or we didn't do enough we should have did more and for this uh for this it was definitely uh a feeling that you know it was a good one it was a it was a really good feeling to when we left there that we did we did a ton of good work there i mean we even rescued a 400 pound pig that was somebody's pet that we, that we helped uh get situated so you know it was it was uh it was a positive very positive experience for being such a bad uh 
you know, so much destruction. It was a very positive, positive experience. When I talk a lot about the tactical athlete, the fitness of the firefighter, you know, it's very easy to become complacent. Like a lot of the places I worked in um, Orange County, you know, they were single story uh, houses that we would make entry to. It wasn't a lot of high rise and things. So um, there's an ability to still function with a lower level of fitness. But when I find if my memory serves me right, when Rob was reporting some of the stuff that your team had to do, multiple stories of evacuations, et cetera, talk to me about that worst case, you know, the other side of what we might have to do and how their fitness enabled them to facilitate those rescues. So Rob, uh, Rob got Rob got the short uh, the short straw on that one because he he's the newer uh, the newer rescue team manager. So uh, you know, obviously, I had to pull some seniority on that one because. Uh, what he ended up having to do was was and the crews that did it with him was was pretty grueling there was a there was a a fair amount of high rises um out on the, on the beach that had uh elderly um i don't want to say trapped in there but they were they chose to shelter in place um because that might be the only that condo might be the only thing that they that they were attached to so they sheltered in place. Well, it's our job uh, as part of the task force to make sure that either they're going to stay in place, and if they are, we get all their information, or if they want to be evacuated, um, you know, we we assist in getting them at least down to the ground floors and getting them to the evacuation sites. Well, <laughs> I gave that job to Rob as the senior rescue team manager, so he worked with with two squads full of guys to um, basically walk the buildings and uh, make sure everybody was accounted for. If they were staying that they, you know, we got all their information that they were going to shelter in place. If there was any injuries to anybody, we got, we took note of that. You know, if there were any major needs, we took note of that. So basically you had to account for everybody in, the, in that building one way or another. And uh, some of them were, you know, 30 35 story buildings so these guys were <laughs> with some equipment uh and you know just hand tools and stuff they were they were walking these these stairs these high-rise steps checking every floor knocking on every door and and uh, accounting for everybody so rob you know it, it's in the task force we don't we don't just send a crew out to go do something we usually we're usually right along with them as their as their um boss and uh, so Rob had to uh, kind of hoof it up and down them steps uh, multiple times, uh, you know, and you do it a couple times because we don't only we don't only search it once, like just like a house fire. We won't only search it once and then not go back to it. We'll we'll search it multiple times to make sure that we that we have it covered. So he he searched those. He got to know those steps very, uh, very intimately. <laughs> and, it, you know, you can imagine doing doing 30 stories in a high rise multiple times um plus knocking on all the doors plus carrying your equipment plus carrying people down to the getting people down to the ground floor it's not an easy task and especially when these buildings are sealed up sitting on the beach with no ac yeah those stairwells get pretty pretty hot pretty sweaty and it's not easy work well again that's a great reminder to us the importance of worst case because you know if you train for what you normally do every day is that going to be enough for you know the vegas shooting hurricane and etc so i think it's a good reminder yeah and then down here too you know you throw in 
you're in you're you're operating in south in you know south florida or southwest florida there but um you know during surfside when the surfside collapse happened we were in our own backyard we were on miami beach and we were having teams come from you know from the north and also from way out west those guys were kicking ass i mean they were working as hard as they could but the humidity was 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 destroying them because they're they're not used to working in uh in the humidity that we work in down here and it was you know their work rest cycles had to be greatly altered because uh we would have uh we would have hurt a lot of guys or or you know put down a lot of guys be- with heat exhaustion because it was just it was just too hot for them to uh to work at the pace and at the west uh, rest work cycles and what we were doing so we were having to rotate the guys that were not local a lot more uh than we normally would do because they were they were getting they were getting just beat to hell you know because it was it was so hot and so humid it's completely different i mean i i came from england and then joined you know the fire service and then started in hialeah and you know going through that in gear in the florida summer when you're used to <laughs> english weather was uh yeah quite the learning curve i don't think you ever acclimatize fully but you at least your baseline is a little higher when you live and breathe in you know florida weather every single day man i tell you it as i get older it's getting it's getting harder and harder though this this last summer was man it was tough it's not uh it hasn't been it wasn't an easy summer to work to work that's that's for sure so I want to get back to your kind of your early life, but just before we do, because obviously we organically found ourselves at Ian. One other thing, the reports that I got when I hear Rob talk, when I hear also Rob, my friend that worked in that neighboring department, it would appear that the the death toll was a lot higher than most people realize. What was your perception of that? It doesn't even have to be specifically figures, but the downplaying element almost seemed like it, well, it was kind of bad-ish, but from... What I'm hearing from other people, it was really, really bad, and I don't feel like it was given that weight through the news. Um, so yeah, um, you know, if you hear a one one death uh, from somebody that stayed in their home um, and got you know swept out to sea or got their house collapsed on them, you go, man, that's that's one death too many. But um, th- we had a lot of those. When we we were finding we're finding bodies pretty regularly um, while searching over there. And uh, as I said earlier, you, we would talk to the the community and and ask them why they stayed, you know, and, and some of them, a good majority of them were not originally from that area. So they would say, well, we're not from this area and we didn't think it was going to get that bad. Or, you know, like I said earlier, we lost all our stuff to looters last time. Uh, or we, you know, they just told us it wasn't going to be that bad. But I do know that we, the numbers, uh, from what I remember, the numbers seem to jive with what um, the local municipality reported as as um, missing or, or unaccounted for that, that we found. You know, those numbers seem to, I remember that those numbers jive, but it doesn't seem like they all got, all those people got talked about. Um I don't think the 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 general population of the states know how many people you know were lost over there, and it was it was it was a significant amount. Um, I don't I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but um, I'll tell you it was more than 
more than 10 and for a beach community like that um to me that's pretty staggering numbers you know um people that would stay in their homes uh 50 50 yards from the from the beach you know um where the tidal surge would come in and just completely take everything away um there was it was a significant amount of of people i mean we we were finding people pretty regular and then it got to once once more helps showed up it got to some of it was duplication like one team would find would find somebody and maybe they were heavily entangled in the in the rubble and the next day or a couple hours later another team would find them not realizing that they that that area had already been accounted for and they'd find the same person over again but that uh that didn't happen often but it, it did happen but once the uh you know, we would find them, mark them with GPS, and then turn them over to the uh, homicide uh, police homicide division, and they would deal with the the morgue and and you know taking them out of the rubble. Um, once they really engaged in the work, it, that the duplication went away real quick because they were getting them out as soon as we were showing them where they were, they were suiting up and getting them out. So there was a little bit of a reflex time in the beginning, but um, once they got up and moving, uh, they did a hell of a hell of a job. Well, going back to the hurricane that took your home, when, mm -hmm. when you look back, you know, what did you, what was next? You literally are in your home with all your things and your bed and everything. The next thing is a storm sweeps through and now you have nothing. Walk me through your family's journey. So we got nothing basically. Um, the the insurance agent. I remember we were uh, at first we were we were staying at my. She's my wife. I lost her. There you go. She's my wife now, but she was she was my girlfriend at the time. We were staying um, at her house uh, with her her sister and her mom and me and my mom, uh, we were staying at her house in Homestead. The house was in the house was an old house. It was built in the fifties, but for the most part, we were fine, except we didn't have any power. Um, so I would take my mom. We lived, uh, my wife's place was probably 15 miles from, from where my house was. So, so I would take my mom every, every day. She'd want to go back and try to, you know, pick through the, pick through the rubble and find what was ours, you know, and on the street and see if we could save uh, a coffee cup or, uh, you know, the, the stuff that you try to try to salvage when you're in that mind frame. It just, it's, it's a little ridiculous, but you're clinging on to your past, you know? So uh, it doesn't seem ridiculous at the time, but so I was taking my mom back every day. And one of the days we showed up there and uh, the agent from state farm was there and, um, uh, the gentleman wrote her pretty much her insurance check right there on this, on the spot. And that area was pretty much no longer ours anymore. So we, uh, we started looking for a home and we, we ended up finding a small apartment uh, or two small apartments up in the Kendall area. So my mom and I moved into one and my, 
my wife and her family or my she was my girlfriend at the time and her family moved into another one and we basically began life in this area of of you know Miami um then it was time to find jobs and and pick up the pieces so to speak um because the place I was working at at the time I wasn't a farmer at the time obviously because I, I was significantly younger um I was working at a at an exclusive restaurant and that got blown away. So I lost my job and it was kind of time to, you know, realize, okay, you, you time to grow up. What are you going to do with yourself? And, uh, I had originally started out my life to be, uh, an American literature professor of all things. I, w- I was, you know, very much into, into, uh, literature and I wanted to, I wanted to teach it. I've always wanted to teach for some reason, I've always felt that in my in my bones, in my calling to be to be an instructor. So I wanted to do to be a professor. Um, well, that didn't quite work out the way I had originally intended. So I was back home without a job, um, and I had I had some family members that were on with the City of Miami Fire Department, and we went to a a family function, and I got to talking with them, and I was. You know, I had really no direction. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and uh, I started thinking about it. And I remembered back went to when I was a younger kid. When I was a younger kid, I would tell my mom all the time that I was going to be a fireman. And uh, I, I would tell her that, you know, I wanted, wanted to be a fireman. And I was very motivated by a book that I read when I was a kid uh, called... Uh, I. I always mess it up. I, I don't remember if it's 10,000 alarms or, or 100,000 alarms, but it's written by a, uh, he was a then lieutenant uh, on a rescue company, on a heavy rescue company in New York. Um, his name, uh, it's, it's, I'm drawing a blank right now, but anyway, he, he wrote this book and I remember reading it as a kid and uh, learning what the heavy rescue company is doing and think that it was really such a cool thing you know, what they do uh, different than, than the regular, uh, regular line firemen. So I kicked it around a little bit. Um, and I went on my own to, uh, the Florida state fire college, which is in Ocala. I drove myself up there, went, went to school up there. I stayed up there for three months, not coming home, uh, <laughs> just staying in Ocala and, uh, ended up graduating with my fire state fire uh, certification and uh, started looking for a job within probably a year of getting this. This now is fast forward to let's call it 93. Uh, I went through fire school from May, from March to May of 93. And then probably somewhere around December of 93, I went back to Ocala to take a uh, a rope rescue class on my own at the time, and I met uh, some gentlemen from a couple of guys from uh, the city of Immokalee Fire Department, which is a small commu- migrant community on the West Coast near Naples. I met them, and uh, we hit it off. We we became friendly, and they you know they told me, hey, why don't you come and and volunteer with us? We we run a uh, a combination department where we, for volunteers, we do paid per call where we'll pay you $5 for a call. 
you can come over on the weekends and, and hang out. We fight fire. You know, we're a very busy, small department. So I did that. I, I, I went over and started spending a lot of time there as a volunteer. Um, and within about a year into 94, I, uh, I got hired with them full time. They offered me a job and I ended up spending seven years there close to seven years there as a, as a fireman. And I left there in 99 to go to the city of Miami fire department. But I, I spent, you know, a, a good part of my beginning years in the fire service. I spent uh, over in Immokalee and they were small department. You know, sometimes we'd pull up to a house fire and there'd just be one of us on the engine. Um, at the time they were, you know, grossly undermanned, um, Equipment was was not in the greatest of shape, but for two, it, we were two firehouses in that community, and we were running. Then we were running close to like thirty five hundred calls a year, so they were a busy, a busy little department, and it, and it it taught me very fast um, a bunch of different aspects of this job because you you weren't just an engine company or 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 a truck company; you had to do everything. You had to do from extinguishment to overhaul to search to, you know, to all aspects of it because we were so undermanned and mutual aid was coming from 20 or 30, 30 miles away. So it was a while before they got to you. So you had to uh, be able to perform on your feet, uh, perform on your feet and perform well. So uh, it taught me a lot about the job very early and, uh, I kind of carried some of that experience with me when, uh, when I got hired with the city of Miami, which is a different, uh, different animal, you know, because you're, uh, you're a small fish in a very big pond in, in the city because we're a significantly bigger fire department. But I, I believe it. I believe that working in Immokalee was kind of what laid, what laid the groundwork for me. Um, taught me my work ethic very, very uh, early. Um, and it taught me how to be a student of the fire service and then not only how to be a student, but how to be an instructor and give back, um, by teaching different aspects of, of, of the, of the job. So, uh, I do that now pretty extensively, uh, within multiple fire departments around the country, plus my own, um, you know, I, I'm an instructor. I'm an instructor, and I enjoy I enjoy that aspect of the of the job a lot, especially as I get older. So, was the book Twenty Thousand Alarms, uh, Lieutenant Richard Hamilton? Yes, okay. Dick Hamilton. All right, because I had to, when I looked it up, there's a picture of an old beat up copy on someone's desk. So I don't know if it's even still in print anymore, but I'd never heard of it before, so I looked uh, it up quickly. Yeah, I don't I don't think it's in print anymore. But uh, man, I'll tell you, uh, for a book that was written. I want to say in the sixties or seventies, you know, it was kind of written during the war years of, of the FDNY. It's a great book and it explains, you know, he talks about his, the calls that he, that he, that he would go on and kind of chronicles his life from being a young man all the way up to around the time he retires. And, and for, for a, a good period of time, he was one of the higher decorated, according to the book anyway, he was one of the higher decorated, uh, officers in the FDNY. And I remember reading it and thinking this is, you know, this would be really cool to do. 
But once I graduated high school and stuff, uh, it, it didn't work out that way. It went that I was going to be, uh, again, as I said, a literature professor. And then that didn't work out. And uh, I went back to to wanting to be wanting to be a fireman. And, and uh, I stuck with it. And uh, I've tried every day to uh, to make it to make it, uh, you know, something to be proud of. Have you thought about writing a book circling around to your initial passion? I have. Um, I, I've kicked it around. Um, I just, I would have to, I would have to, I would have to sit with somebody that could kind of teach me the, the, uh, the ins and outs of how you get something like that started. Because I've, I've, I've sat down a couple of times and tried to put some thoughts to paper and it just goes like, <laughs> it goes all, all over the place. And, and uh, I, it's hard for me to follow a direction and I'm like that a lot a lot of times anyway in my head I have I've ADD pretty bad so I I can start rambling and uh it sounds almost ridiculous when I when I read it back to myself so I would have to really get somebody that could kind of teach me how to you know how to put everything in order there's a lot of guys out there that do it really well you know you got um like a Corley Moore Brian Brush all those guys are so and they just seem like, you know, intellectual gods to me next to being firemen. They, to me, they just seem so smart, you know, um, those guys do it very well. You know, um, I would have to, I would have to hitch my wagon to somebody like them to, to show me the ins and outs, you know, um, on how to do something like that. So for right now, I'm just doing the, well, for a long time now, I'm, I'm doing more of the hands-on style training. Um, lately, I've been working a lot with Rob Ramirez, uh, you know, for, during, with his Mayday Mindset. He does all the lecture, and I kind of help out with the uh, with the hands-on portion. Plus, I'm a full-time instructor with uh, National Rescue Consul Consultants, which we do. Um, our bread and butter is, you know, all technical rescue style training. Um as well as uh, firefighting-based training, but I, I kind of run the uh, the man versus machine uh, aspect of the of the company, and I keep kind of head up the teaching of that of that uh, curriculum. So it it's uh, it keeps us keeps us hopping, and I have a good time with it. I think one of the enemies to reading and writing for a firefighter is our brains are just so scrambled from shift work that it's yeah. really hard to just calm those thoughts and articulate what you're trying to say so it's i wrote a book three years ago but that was two years into transitioning out and it was only then that i was like okay because i wrote blogs but i'm like okay how I, now i can finally think straight and i've been reading again and i can collate all these blogs that i did and kind of put them and expand on them and add chapters and create a book but I've said this a lot. I mean, my book's only 183 pages, I think, something like that. I think what made it somewhat successful is it's small enough where we can read it because I don't think people realize just how hard it is to create, to read, to do all the things when your mind is conditioned to be on, you know, on red alert the whole time. It really does have an impact on our ability to 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 read and to write, I think. That is that is a very true statement that I've, I've often believed myself and I've never 
heard it said uh, by somebody else that has been in the service, but absolutely. And then I, I can only speak for my, for my experience in it. Um, then you compound it with, with PTSD. Uh, I suffer pretty heavy. Uh, I don't want to say suffer cause uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough word, but I, I deal pretty heavily with some PTSD issues. Um, so now you compound all that other stuff of being just basically brain fried. You compound it with, you know, the signs and symptoms that you get that some people get with PTSD and it makes it even, uh, even tougher. I mean, um, like even this speaking to you today, um, I notice since I've been dealing with PTSD for the last probably seven or eight years, something that I've con contracted that I never had was when I get a little bit of anxiety or when I get nervous, I start to, I start to stutter or I start to put wider gaps between my words. And if you've never talked to me before, you may not catch it, but I catch it. And I, you know, so that's one, one thing that I, that I deal with, um, that I never had to deal with when I was younger, you know, or growing up. Um, so I, I think this job mentally takes, and I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy that, that bashes the job uh, mentally because of mental issues, but uh, this job does, uh, you know, expend a very healthy toll on, uh, on a lot of people mentally, I think. And I, I, I don't think we've begun to really tap into how much it affects some people um yet you know i don't think that i think we're seeing it um we're finding out every day new new things that that how this job hurts us but uh i don't think we've we've gotten a full picture yet of how much damage this this job does to us mentally you know yeah, I do. Hundred. This is the creation of this podcast. Was that mentally and physically together? I mean, everything. You know, the number of people that we attend funerals for that arguably should have been some of the most resilient members of a community on day one, yeah. standing on the grinder, and now you know, cancer, heart disease, overdose, suicide. I mean, it's not doom and gloom, but we have to. If we don't address the other side of it, I mean, all of us adore this profession a lot of people in this country do it for free or you know paid on call but the only thing that's more important than the job is coming home to your family and making sure they're okay and if that yeah. starts to shift and now they're losing mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters because not the job so much but the way that we've devolved as far as the work week for the job and you know the the lack of understanding of how to create a, a, an environment to thrive rather than fail that's the conversation we had. No one that's pushing for change is feeling anything but love for the job, but we can still do the same job in a different way and have much better results. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I'll tell you, I'm coming to I'm coming to the end. You know, I probably have. I'll finish out this year, and then probably I'm looking at you know early next year going into the going into the drop, and then I'll do four years and I'll be gone. So I'll, I'll probably be gone in, in let's call it five years total. Um, and not because they're bad at it or not because um, they're doing anything that I, I perceive as wrong, but I'm in fear for the fire service uh, actually. Um, Cause I think in my opinion, we're going to see a lot more of this before it gets 
any better. I, I, I don't think we've even seen, you know, the, uh, the pinnacle of it. I think it, I think we're going to see more and, and, and I, you know, there's a lot of organizations now really throwing, throwing their, their stuff into the ring and trying to help out. And, but I just don't think we've, we've gotten the full grasp yet of, of what happens inside a, uh, let's call a physically and mentally healthy rescuer that all of a sudden they decide that the best course of action is to, uh, is to terminate their, their life, you know? Um, and, and you would think that we see one of those happen and it immediately stops it in the, in the service. But it seems like the more that we see it and the more that we hear about it becoming commonplace, the more of a, and I know I'm going to take a beating for saying this, but the, and obviously put it into the context of how I'm saying it, but it almost becomes the accepted practice for us as, as the, as the first responders way out, you know, and uh, it's a, it's a, I'm worried. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I think we're, we're going to face a significant problem. I mean, I'm not ashamed to say, you know, for many years I was embarrassed and, and ashamed, but I'm not ashamed to say that, that it almost got me. And uh, you know, I had, I had basically planned, you know, I sat around and, and kind of thought about how my wife at the time and kids would be and my mom would be without me. And I started to rationalize, you know, that they would be okay. And then I sat on the couch for about a week and a half and I didn't engage with them at all. Um, barely spoke to them, didn't go to work. And I watched the interaction between the kids and my wife, the my mom and I watched how they picked up the slack for me. Um, and I watched and began to rationalize that they'd be okay without me and that, uh, I don't need to be here anymore and that I'd actually be doing them, doing them a solid by, by getting rid of myself, you know? And I, I basically, I planned it. I, I planned exactly how I was going to go, when I was going to go and, there were a couple of things I needed to put in place um, to get it done. And I, I was in the process of doing that. And uh, I don't know how till this day, he doesn't really, we talked about it just the other day, but to this day, he doesn't know how he figured it out. My captain of all people uh, figured it out. He just one, one morning got an epiphany that I was going to, I was going to end my life. And he was right. And had he not intervened, he can't, you know, he came to my house I was supposed to be at work and he came to my house um, with some members from my firehouse. And had he not, had he not done that, I wouldn't be here because there was nothing, nothing that was going to stop me at the time. Um, and this was in the 2017 there, November of 2017, there was nothing that was going to stop me. I was dealing with you know, a massive addiction to uh, pain medication because of an injury. Um, and I was dealing with depression and anxiety and PTSD. I was dealing with, you know, uh, visions from, from responding to Haiti as a rescuer, um, not feeling adequate as a man, not feeling adequate as a fireman. And I just said, fuck it. This is, I'm, I'm done, man. I, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm checking out. And, uh, he figured it out and he came and got me. Uh, but as I was saying, had he not, um, not showing up at my house, there was nothing that was going to stop me. 
Um, I was that committed. And once, and that's the part I think overall that worries me the most about the fire service moving forward. And not only the fire service, the military police, I mean, all of us, um, it worries me because once we're, we're usually pretty, um, a type personalities. And once we get our mindset on something, there's no turning back. And that's pretty much where I was at. Um, you know, the argument of, well, you, you know, your kids or it didn't matter. I, I had, I had resolved myself to the fact that I was no longer going to be here and it was going to be me who ended my own life. And I got to tell you, that's when you made that, uh, when you've made that connection, there's probably very few people that can speak to it on honestly that are still around. But when you, when you've made that connection, when you've said, I am going to terminate my existence, um, you know, I, it's funny. I, I, I took the line from, from uh, a Lou Reed song. Um, he said from the song heroin, he says, I want I wanted to nullify my life. And that's, that's exactly how I felt. I wanted to just nullify my life and make it as if I was never here. When you're in that mindset and that's your, that's your solace knowing that you're going to do that. You're in a very, very dark place. And, uh, there's not a whole lot that's going to, that's going to help you because you've already committed to that act, you know? So it worries me for the future because I don't think we have all the answers yet. So, you know, we can always say what we say. Listen, if there's anybody out here, listen, out there listening to this podcast that feels that they're in this, that boat or, or feel that they might some time get in that boat at the end, uh, you know, I'll give them all, I'll give my, phone number my social media all of that they can contact me and i'll be more than happy to sit and talk with them and that's really the only thing we can offer um with the hopes that it it helps you know because i don't think we've come up clinically yet with with a way to to solve this and it worries me greatly that we're going to see a lot more especially um on the addiction side as well and i think the addiction side is the is the gate that you know the gateway i think that's what opens it and uh gets you heading towards the uh the termination of life thing um so i you know i worry i worry a lot i don't know that we have all the all the answers yet this conversation i think marks roughly 850 almost interviews i've done and so when you say, you know, a lot of people aren't here to report uh, clearly, and that's what's heartbreaking, so many people that we've lost. But what I've been fortunate enough, and it's not like this is a mental health podcast, this is a health podcast, this is a living, you know, getting out of pain, suffering podcast. But the number of people that have been on here from all walks of life, including our own profession, that have been right there. And so I've got to see some really glaring commonalities so i just to to insert some hope but this this requires action on what i'm about to say if we're going to actually fix it but the first thing is the facade that is how we perceive suicide and just like you said you know it's it's cowardly you know how could they do that it's so selfish think of your kids the number of people and i was going to ask you this but you already answered it that said I truly believe that I was a burden to my family and that they would be better off. 
And there is no better tragic example of that than the two police officers we lost in Florida a few months ago. The boyfriend first, and then the girlfriend, and they left behind an infant child. That illustrates how broken these brains are. And that's not from a judgy way. That's a biochemical trauma-based element that your what used to be your self-preservation has now completely twisted to where you truly believe that the best thing for my whatever month-year-old child is that I am not here anymore, which is why it's so hard for people that aren't struggling to understand because they don't understand. You know, I've heard you in the past mention, um, I, I know for a fact you mentioned it during Rob's podcast, but um, you've mentioned it in a few others, uh, Maddie uh, Negley. Um, I, I had the opportunity to speak uh, to his brother, not, not too long. Matter of fact, it was last year. Um, we were at the Orlando, at the Orlando fire conference and we were, we were in the instructor's meeting. I was sitting next, next to Rob and, uh, he got up like he normally does. And he, you know, he, he spoke, he thanked everybody for, for being there. And, um, somehow the conversation, uh, got on, you know, he got to opening up a little bit and, and speaking and he said, you know, the one, the one question that, that still, that still haunts him is, is if he could, if he could, he'd, he'd want to ask his brother why, you know? And, uh, I don't know. I, I you know, I, I've spoken to him in the past and heard him, heard him say that more than once, but just that day for, for whatever reason, it, it, it hit me like a, like a ton of bricks, you know, and I could see the pain on his face and, you know, it was, it was just a hard day. And, um, I felt it on my heart to kind of approach him. And, uh, normally I, I wouldn't really do that. Cause uh, I mean, I have no problem talking about it with anybody and I'm not ashamed of it, but I don't want to make anybody else's pain worse either, you know? So I'm always very careful, um, of how I go about things, but I approached him and, and I said, you know, when you were saying yesterday, you'd want to know why, and, you know, it would, could, was there anything that you could have done to stop it? And, I mean, you know, we're both standing there, two grown men crying, you know, and uh, I told him, I said, I'm here to tell you, no, that, that there's a, a very good chance, no, that you would not have stopped. Even if you said to him, I know what you're planning, there's a good chance that you would not have stopped him if he was committed to, to continuing. And he, he kind of looked at me like, you know, how can you say that? And then and I explained to him how I could say that, how I could kind of be the verification of that. And, uh, it was, uh, I think it was a conversation that was meant to have, you know, uh, I, I think for whatever reason, they put some, the universe put me in, in, in the place where I could have that conversation with him because I, I think, you know, I think it needed to be said. I think he was, he was feeling it pretty, pretty badly that day. And I, I've, I've even spoke with, you know, other members of, of, that department um where they've asked me you know did you did you think about not doing it did, what what was going through your mind and, and uh, you hit it on the head when you said uh broken you know that part of us is broken uh it, i don't know whether it just shuts off after so much 
suffering that so much suffering that we see, or if it, if there's a single event that shuts it off, I don't know. I, I don't know the answers, but I know the accumulative effect uh, it breaks us. And I think uh, I think for for me and the guys from Orlando, I think it was it was a good a good moment. It, it need it was a conversation that needed to be said, you know. And uh, and I felt really good afterwards. It was it was a little bit of a of a rough spot getting through it. Uh, you know, like I said, two big guys sitting there blubbering on each other, but um, it definitely, it definitely needed to be, you know, it was something that needed to be said. So I don't know what made me tell you that, but. Yeah. Well, again, it was that feeling of, of, of burdenness, you know, burdensome. And I think that's, that's one thing if we're bringing solutions to this, that needs to be brought into the awareness piece, like not, you know, hey, give me a call if you're struggling. I mean, you can put that on, but I would argue most people in crisis are not going to pick up the phone and calmly call someone. No, because, you know, how am I going to call X, person X, when I know that person X was sitting in the kitchen the shift before making fun of some other guy uh, for maybe not wanting to kill himself, but for, for whatever reason he was making fun of him. So that's something that we got to deal with too is the you know is the safetyness of it and what I, what do i mean by that it, 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 are you going to hold my secrets are you going to and i don't mean hold them like my secrets like i you know did something to break the law i mean my secrets like hey i'm i'm thinking about often myself are you going to either get me in the direction that i need to go with getting help and are you not going to take it back and make fun of it because if you, if you, if you do that, it's going to make it worse. And let's let's be real. I'm a part of it too. In the fire service, we like to we like to take shots, and we like to like to dig at people, you know. And uh, maybe maybe that's part of it too. Maybe people are afraid to come forward because they're afraid that their that their junk's going to get thrown out on on Front Street for everybody to see, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can tell you another really big problem that I see that multiple departments are having is what I call the reintegration factor. So you you, you know, have a member who is suffering from some sort of addiction. Let's call it uh, opiates because that was mine. Um, suffering from an opiate addiction, send him away to get help when he comes back and is ready to assimilate back into into service how do you how do you as a department treat him how do you put him on days until you feel that he's ready ready to go back do you have him meet with the city uh you know with the city psychologist uh do you drug test him repeatedly make him sign paperwork that says he can be drug tested x amount of times at any any time do you just send him back to work what is the what is the reintegration uh, policy in your department? And I would tell you that's that is big on whether that member will possibly fail again or whether they will succeed and stay clean is how they're treated when they get back. Um, and I think some departments are doing it right, and I think some departments are doing it not so right. You know, um, 
And I think it's it's going to take strong leaders, community and, and fire department and police and, you know, strong leaders to say, I'm going to treat this guy like a human being and like like somebody that is that is hurting when he gets back. I'm going to, you know, make it mandatory that he does certain things if he wants to get back to the firehouse, but I'm not going to treat him any lesser than than he than I did before he went away. And I think sometimes that tends to happen, you know. Um, I think we could talk for days about the PTSD side of it. Um, the addiction side of it is huge as well. Um, and I think in our profession, it's a little bit uh, accepted, you know, and uh, it starts with, the, you know, uh, we're all going to have a drink or two after after we get off shift or we had a rough shift let's go knock down a case of beer and listen i'm not i'm not uh speaking out against that i've obviously been a part of that that lifestyle for going on 30 years um and i believe some of the best learning in the fire service happens when a bunch when a bunch of old guys are mentoring a bunch of new guys over a couple beers so that's not what i'm it's not what i'm saying but i think that our profession lends itself to to addiction different addictions pretty easily you know um because it's a it's a safe place it becomes our our solace whatever our addiction is becomes our our solace and our 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 safe spot it makes us feel comfort you know and ultimately we're all whether that we're the baddest bodybuilder crossfit boxer guy or we're a nerd, a nerdy, you know, bookworm, we're all looking for the same thing. And that, that's, that's comfort, whatever that comfort, however we get that comfort is, is dependent on, you know, on us. But I think in the long term, we really need to look at the, at the addiction side of things more seriously than we're looking at them now and just saying, Oh, that guy's, that guy's a drug addict. We need to write him off. No, there's, there's a reason, you know, and we need to kind of find that reason. And I think, I think the addiction side of it definitely goes hand in hand with the PTSD side of it. hundred percent. Well, I think there's a couple of areas, like I said, with hope that I think if we truly address, and like you said, it requires courageous leadership because there's so much resistance to changing this at the moment, but having worked for four departments so that's four hiring processes four academies you know four, four probations i got pretty good at you know mopping floors um firstly when i look at all the times i did the psych test and the polygraph and then you take a step back and then you ask through this podcast all these mental health professionals polygraph is bullshit we all know that you know it's smoke and mirrors getting you to admit to something the Minnesota personality test is the one they use from the psychiatric test. Everyone that's been on here has said that is not a valid test standalone. It's part of a, a gamut of tests for forensic psychology, not to determine if a candidate is good to be a firefighter or not. So both of those are invalid. So my first thing is we shift our thinking to the understanding that most people that are going to walk into our profession are going to have elements of childhood trauma. You know, we've talked about it off off mic. We're not going to go down your path for a specific deliberate reason, but you yourself have, have got the same exact thing. 
So, you know, our profession attracts that, you know, we want to be the protector, we want the buck to stop here, we want to, um, you know, also, I think, seek adrenaline, because it does kind of stuff some of those memories down too. So at the front door, you take the budget that you already fucking have, and you stop the bullshit testing. And instead, because you're doing a background check, you've done a physical test, you've done a written test, you know, you've, you've checked criminal history. So you know, this is a good person who's the right fit. So stop yeah. box checking with these stupid things that, you know, don't mean anything. But instead, give your brand new recruits, let's say, six counseling sessions. So now at the front door, they've had the opportunity to offload some trauma. The mental health conversation has been normalized and the barrier to entry of finding a counselor has been removed because you literally have a go-to person, whether they work for an agency and the size of yours, that was a possibility. Or if they're smaller, they obviously contract someone locally. So right there, that's the first part. The second part is the sleep deprivation side. And I've talked about this. This is one of the reasons I began this podcast, because once I became educated and had that aha moment, I realized how fucking insane it is the way that we work our people. But to summarize, well, I, I had a, I've, I've talked about this in a lot of different ways, but I had a conversation with a Marine Recon friend who was one of their human performance gurus as well. And I was educating him because we're about to be part of a collation of evidence to show the fire service how far from human performance we are. And this is from an organization that works with NASA, the Navy SEALs, DARPA. So this is going to be incredible once this is finished in November. But he's part of the panel. I'm part of the panel. And I was trying to explain to him the sleep deprivation side. And I'm like, everyone you know, that's kind of got their their toe in the water talks about Matthew Walker and like, oh, did you know that 24 hours without sleep is the same as a blood alcohol of point one and i was like and he brought that up and i was like well here's the problem that's a group of college students that have done some research work and gone in and not slept for 24 hours we're talking about men and women that haven't slept every third day for 10 20 30 years so we're yeah. talking multiples of that point one and he said, well, has there any research been done? I'm like, no, we, we researched the shit out of smoothbore nozzles and tiny houses and flow patterns, but we won't yeah. do anything on the health of the first responder, fucking almost nothing. And so I explained to him and he's like, you know what I've just realized? If you, if you submitted a request to do a study on the fire service and you said, I need these subjects to not sleep for 24 hours every third day, for two months, I'm sorry, for two weeks, for a month, whatever it would be. Ethically, you wouldn't even be able to do that study. That is the other part of the conversation. They would shut you down. They would, they would literally shut you down uh, because you, they, they'd say you're torturing, you're torturing your, subs, your subjects, you know. And then on top of it, not only do you take away their ability to sleep, but then you give them false hope. You tell them, hey, go lay down. It's okay. Go lay down. And you put them, you put them down, and they're down for forty-five or so. And then you come into the room, bang pots and pans, simulate the the alarm, and they got to get up and now perform zero to a hundred. Yeah. You know, when I got hired, when I got hired with the city of Miami, we didn't have, um, we didn't have the the first alert. It's called first alert. We didn't have the first alert system that we have now. What we had was all on speakers and klaxons that just went off in the station. And then you had a watchman that was, you know, an older gentleman, probably Vietnam era veteran. And he would get on that 
loud, get on the loudspeaker and scream into the microphone. You know, engine six, you got to run right in the mic and the speakers right over your head. You know, that contributed contributes to uh, to a lot of it, too. And I think it just there's multiple systems within us that either get shut off or get broken, like you said, over a period of not sleeping. Uh, then you you couple that with, you know, um, responding to Haiti as a rescuer or you couple it with um, coming back to the firehouse after not being asleep for 18 hours and washing some guy's blood off of your uniform or, you know, just all of the gloom and doom that goes with the job or just simply having to perform delicate maneuvers after not sleeping. I'm part of, I'm assigned to the technical rescue team. I ride, I ride the heavy rescue uh, in my department and I'm assigned to the heavy rescue uh, rescue team. I can't tell you how many times in my career I've gone, maybe I'm holding and now I'm on the back end of a 48. I haven't had hardly any sleep and I'm having to cut a teenager out of a car or I'm having to perform a rope rescue incident or somebody under a train, you know, that ramps it up even higher. You're, you're, you know, let's put regular firefighting aside for a second and talk about the guys that have to perform, uh, you know, advanced, advanced procedures. It, it, I think it just, <laughs> the long-term effects for us, it, it, it's, it, it's too great. I think, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I would love, I would love to see the numbers on a study like you're, like you're getting to, getting ready to do i would think that that is going to be the numbers are going to be crazy um and what you guys are able to to show and and not show you know i think it's going to be a very worthwhile um study however you guys choose to go um the sad thing is it's not even needed but that what i get because i've talked about you know the 2472 being the industry standard now for seven years since i started this podcast and I just had Jared Vermeulen on, who's from um, Boca, just talking okay. about that. You know what I mean? Like, literally, we have a department now, too. I think um, Boynton just went to it. Um, trying to get the person who's spearheaded. I think there's a lot of politics, and there wasn't a real kind of go-getter that I can find. It was more <laughs> by default by by uh, politicians that didn't like each other in unions and, and administrations, from the way I understand it. But she's just very disappointing. But anyway, you know, it's already there. The Northeast that everyone reveres. FDNY don't work 56 hours a week. You know what I mean? So this is what's so fucking insane. But what drives me crazy is that. You know, firstly, we believe our own myth. And I'll just say this very quickly because I, I talk about it sometimes. For the longest time, we've all said, oh, I work one day on two days off. You know, well, a, a day for most people is nine hours with a one hour lunch. It's an eight hour day. So we work three days crammed together. So it's actually three days on one day off. That second day isn't a day off because you work from midnight to eight. So that's not a day off. You work that day. So it's three days on one day off. And it's not 10 days a month. It's 30 days a month. When you put it that way, all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I thought that was the whole point. The firefighter schedule was amazing. It's not. It should be because we're asking people to be awake all night. We should have the rest and recovery. It doesn't matter if you look at cancer, injury, heart disease, obesity, autoimmune disease, suicide, overdose, you know, or addiction, excuse me. It's all the common denominator is lack of sleep. Now, there are other contributing factors, but... 
if we're not sleeping, you put me in a dark room, I'm going to fall asleep. That's what happens. We're supposed to go to sleep when it's nighttime. So if we're going to ask our men and women to be awake while everyone else goes to bed, they should have, if nothing, a shorter work week than the average civilian. So the fact that we're working them 56 hours or 48 with a Kelly, and then there's a mandatory, so now you're on an 80-hour work week, which I did a lot of my career as well, is absolute insanity. But we yep. believe our own myths. The you know the short-sighted people in the leadership positions don't want to talk about anything other than what looks them good in a budget year, even though they're actually bleeding money because their cities and counties are paying hand over fist for workman's comp, you know, the overtime on those vacant positions, the medical retirements, the lawsuits because when we make mistakes. So it's wrong no matter which way you look at it. And people will go, oh, yeah, but that's going to cost money. Yeah. You know, it costs money to build the bright line from Orlando, but you still fucking did it because you know 10 years from now you're going to make money. That's what happens. Sometimes you have to make brave decisions, invest in your people, and you will save money hand over fist down the road. So it's insanity no matter which way you look at it. But until we're all educated enough to band together and unions stop fighting over a 50 cent pay raise, but actually advocate for the working conditions... Only then, with a, like I said, counseling at the front door, a work week like Boca's, will we really, really move the needle on this? And then we can start picking at the smaller things after that. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think you're onto something. Um, you know, and like you said, you, you attack, you attack the, the, big, the big thing in the room and then you go for the smaller things. And I think once you, once you bring all of that together, I think you'll really start to see results, you know. Um, cause there's just so many different aspects of what we're talking about here. You know, um, I'll give you another one. I, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm an advocate of drug use, but I personally think that, um, TH, you know, THC going away and drug panel tests, um, for us, it would be a positive cause you could have a guy that is dealing with some PTSD issues that doesn't sleep real well to begin with. Um, now you compound that with work problems. So now he takes, you know, um, as he takes Xanax or takes antidepressant or takes whatever he takes so he can sleep and he ends up becoming addicted to those drugs. Well, maybe the lesser of two evils is THC. In, in meter in meter dosage you know there's been there's been some studies that show for P, for PTSD things like THC things like psilocybin things like you know things in those different areas in metered micro dosage dosages are a ton better than you know two or three milligrams of xanax or more if if the guy's addicted but I think you you would probably not ever find or they'd be very few because I, I will say very few because some of them have stepped up. You'd be very, very shocked to see um, the head of a department say, I'd rather I'd rather have my members, uh, if they have to take something, use THC or psilocybin than uh, benzos, you know, and some departments have done that. Uh, New York took THC out of the police department, took THC out of their out of their drug panel. Um city of Pittsburgh, I believe, has taken it out of their drug panel. There's there's departments now that have started to look at it. 
because their their leadership has said, I'd rather have a guy that is or or a gal that is, you know, eating a THC gummy so they could go to sleep as opposed to taking X amount of, of milligrams of, of let's say Xanax or, or something along those lines, you know? So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think there would have to be some, some regulating it, you know, on how, how they, how it was allowed. But I, I think that even something like that would be a start, you know? Well, I think it's just having a limit, you know, I think, you know, you can be high as a kite on shift and that's not acceptable. Obviously, you know, you're the, you're the engineer operating the aerial and you, <laughs> you're seeing Tweety birds everywhere, but that's different than you had it to go to sleep and you've got to trace them out in your system now. Right. But is that, and do you have a drug policy in your department that says, as long as you have a prescription for, for Xanax, you can take it. So now that engineer could be operating still loopy as hell because he's eaten a ton of Xanax before lunch. Yeah. You know? So that's what I'm getting at is what's the lesser of two evils, you know? And I, I don't know, but I do know that there's been a lot of study that goes along with the THC and with, with, uh, microdosing psilocybin and even microdosing MDMA. Um, and they're finding that it's overall, it's a lot more conducive for healing as far as your brain and, and performance than being on the normal on the normal gamut of of you know psych drugs or anxiety drugs that 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 we take you know so i don't know man i do know i'm gonna i'm gonna say my original statement is that i'm still a little worried and scared for the future of 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 the fire service police police service military because i I don't think what i don't think we're there yet you know and I think we're going to see some more, some more of it before it gets any better. But I do have hope because there are people like you um, that are, you know, that are pledged to find to finding, you know, an answer. So at least we have that, you know. Yeah. Well, I think I we had two suicides locally, and and the chief said you know we don't have the answers and this is the problem we do have the answers to i mean again yeah. we can't be absolute doesn't mean that you're going to save every single one no. but we have the answers to make a huge huge dent on physical and mental health but that requires people to to find some courage and if they're not courageous then all right vacate that position put someone and I'm talking uh, unions, administrations, all the positions, because there's unions out there that are phenomenal, and there's unions out there that oppose fitness standards. If you're that yep. kind of union, maybe you should step down and allow a real leader to come in and actually address the things that are killing our men and women. You're absolutely correct. I think I, I think it's going to take exactly what you said. It's going to take um, it's going to take some um, you know courage, but more than anything, I think it's going to take honesty, and and the honesty is is you know, it, that's where you're, the, the rubber's going to meet the road. If you have something that you know is good, that you know is going to work, you need to be a leader enough to say, listen, city commission, I don't care what you think. This is what the numbers say. And the numbers say that this is more beneficial for my members than say this, you know? And, but we know that once you start doing things like that, your chances of of rehire or your chances of reelection start to go down and, and at the end that's what people look at first you know so it's going to take it's going to take somebody that is the, it's going to take people that are that are um not selfish you know and not only looking for their 
for themselves to be um, reelected or, or, you know, kept on the payroll um, and worried about their jobs, you know. And I, I know, I know of the department that you were speaking of. Um, I believe you're t- you were talking about Marion County, where they've taken a beating over the last several years with um, suicides and 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 the like. Um, it's been really rough on those guys. Really, really, they've taken a shellacking. You know. Yeah, that's why. I and uh, oh, okay. I didn't. I, I knew you lived in in Florida. I just didn't know. Uh, I didn't know quite where. Yeah, they, I have I have a couple of buddies that work uh, that work there, and uh, it's been pretty rough. They've they've taken a beating, and it's been young. You know, some of them have been younger members too. So, um, it, it's not only affecting the uh, the old guy. Um, you know, it's affecting younger guys on the job. It's affecting middle of the road, and it's affecting guys at the end. You know, absolutely. So, Yep, and I see it. Like I said, I've even got friends that I knew before they became Marin County firefighters when I was working, you know, and I've saw in seven short years a decline to, you know, mental health struggles, leaning into TRT, and these are young, fit people. So I've literally got to witness a timeline from pre-Marion County, you know, service and then the breakdown, you know, and this is 56, no no Kelly, you know, uh, uh, understaffing, so mandatories all the time, and they're just getting literally worked into the ground. And there are answers. And this is what's exciting is this particular study I'm a part of was a local Ocala businessman that said, what is going on? And it's him. He's made his money in the, the um, uh, scrap industry that stepped up and said, I will fund this this research. So it's not even a fire service member that's, that's stepped up. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm excited because I think it's going to be incredible. But back to my initial point, the fact that we even have to prove that, for example, a 42-hour work week would be healthier than a 56-hour work week, that in itself is insanity that you need to see studies to show that. But that's another entire conversation. Yeah, and then and then once you show them the study, you actually have to really convince them that the number's real. <laughs> you yeah. know, they don't believe you. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, then yeah. you've you've touched on Haiti a few times. You you join City of Miami. You end up becoming part of Task Force Two. I was mm-hmm. at Orange County at the time because I speak basic uh, French. And so when the ha- the Haiti earthquake hit, I was petitioning my department like, "Look, are we are we going to send some people?" It's like on our doorstep. You know, we have a lot right. of Haitian people in in the Orlando area as well. So you know, a lot of us are even somewhat well versed in in running on the Haitian people. And there was so much feet dragging that by the time they said, oh, actually, we are, you know, submit, we'll make a list, that they were actually pulling teams by that point, which was weird because it seemed very premature. They were still finding people out there. So yeah. talk to me about, you know, your your journey into the task force. And then let's start with that deployment, because it seemed like it was very traumatic for you specifically. Yeah, that, you know, um, if I had to, if I had to uh, point a finger at my beginning of having let's say having ptsd issues or having issues let's call it um i would say haiti was the uh haiti was definitely the what pulled the trigger um so i was a brand new rescue team manager um on the team Uh, i hadn't deployed in that position yet um i had worked my way up through the team to get to that to that position um and we get the call that we're going so uh and that i'm i'm gonna be one of the 
one of the rescue team managers. So we, uh, you know, we get to Haiti. Um, we end up responding under under U.S. Uh, U.S. aid instead. We we got attached to U.S. aid instead of FEMA um, because U.S. aid is the ones who support the uh, the teams when they go international. So we we kind of get assigned to them, and you know we're told to uh, basically report to the Homestead Air Force Base with all our equipment at such and such a time. We're going to get on a bunch of C-130s and we're going to fly over to Haiti and go and save the day. So we uh, we get to Homestead Air Force Base and basically we run into problems right away where they're, the commanding officer of the base didn't know we were coming. Um, he's giving us a hard time about flying over. Long story short, we end up getting over there we land in Haiti, we get off the plane and we're ready to start working. And we look around and there was just so much devastation. I mean, I can't even, I don't, saying there was so much devastation doesn't even make sense of it all. So we check in with, with a representative from USAID to try to find out what our, what our rules of engagement are, what, what, what areas are, do you want us to work? What, you know, cause in the, in the female world, we're, we follow a very strict guideline set of rules. Uh, you know, we perform the same way every time. Well, when we got, got to Haiti with USAID, it was still early enough in the, in the response period that they were still trying to put their stuff together too. So the girl, the girl that was the representative, she kind of just said, look around, man, um, you know, pick an area and go to work. So, uh, we put we put our heads together. We came up with uh, with a base of operations. We got to the um, the United States Embassy there, and we uh, we offloaded some equipment and and made like a staging area there. Um, we set up some tents so we had a place to to sleep. And uh, but while all that was going on, uh, the ground pounders we were out we were out working. So when we landed in Haiti, we had already been up. You're talking about speaking. We had already been up for like 24 hours. When we got to Haiti, we, uh, we immediately went to work. So that added another 24 rotation to, to the, to the shift. So we, by the time we laid down for the first time, we'd, we'd been up for 48 hours and made multiple, uh, rescues. Um, I was kind of thrown right into the mix. Um, you know, I had, I had a group of men that was going to fall under my command and then the, uh, the other rescue team manager had a group that was going to fall under his command. And we started, we split the team and started, started going out into the, into the community and trying to, um, to affect some rescues. As it turns out, my group got assigned um, to an area, actually to a building called the Caribbean market. And what that was, was if you think of like a, uh, a multi-level five, like five to seven story, building that is like a Costco, but that they have something on every floor. You know, they had uh, groceries on the bottom floor, clothing on the second floor, electronics on the third floor. So they had something on every floor. Um, this was like the main shopping shopping center for, for Port-au-Prince. Um, and it, it, it serviced wealthy and, um, not so wealthy. So there was a mix of people in there. Um, it was a five story, five story building that was reduced 
down to about three feet of ser- of um, searchable space with a mound of rubble on top of it. Um, we were getting multiple reports that there were people trapped inside um, and, and making contact through yelling and banging on pipes and all kinds of other things. So my group went over to that area and we began to, um, you know, do the beginning stages of a search. And we immediately, we were immediately faced with uh, a, what we thought at the time was a ton of people still in the building. We didn't know how many at the time, but we knew there was a lot of them still in the building. Um, there were multiple search markings on the building from um, international uh, teams saying that there was nobody left in the building that, you know, everybody had expired, but in all, in all actuality, there were a lot of live people still in the building. So we, we went to work. Um, trying to find ways to get in and, and get these people out. Um, in the course of kind of working in that area, we kind of threw a lot of a lot of other teams started showing up in Haiti. So we kind of threw all our eggs in one basket and we brought the whole team to that area. And we basically the whole team worked that that site um, because, as I said, it was a big building that came down. Um, and it had a full basement underneath it. So um, there was a lot of area to search and a lot of area around it to search. So we we decided to kind of concentrate uh, just in that area. Um, throughout several days, we, we made multiple rescues um, there. We, we were able to um, GPS mark, geomark, um, multiple deceased um and we would compare some notes with the owner of the, it was a privately owned business and he stayed on the, uh, the gentleman that owned it stayed on the scene and, uh, you know, we would confer with him and he knew his building so well that I could go to him and say, okay, Samir, we're talking to a lady that she's in, she's in the, um, grocery area. She's t- she's on, the first floor, she's telling us that uh, she's able to reach out to her right and grab uh, energy bars. And he'd, he'd show us a map and he'd say, okay, you're in aisle one, about 20 feet into the aisle, and she's reaching to her right. So he knew his store that well. So we would mm-hmm. tell him, all right, listen, we got, um, we're talking to a lady, but then next to her is another lady that's wearing uh, you know a red a red she's telling us she's wearing a red shirt and he'd say okay that's i believe that's louise so we'd look to see if louise was missing and if she was missing we'd we'd make sure we got a good marking with the gps and then we on his note his notes we would mark her as as accounted for she's deceased but she's accounted for so we were able to we were able to kind of put closure to about you know 90 people or so for him um in the process of doing that we came upon a little girl that was uh that was in the rubble and uh she was trapped in the rubble and her mother and sister had uh had expired and uh they were basically the way they were entangled in the rubble um, she was not able to, to get out. So 
when we when we discovered that, we looked at all different ways to get her out of the rubble. And basically, the only way we were going to get that poor little girl out alive was if we took apart certain parts of her, her mother and sister. Um, and I was involved in, in that aspect. Uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I was involved in, 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 in that aspect. Um, throw on top of all of that, we're dealing with aftershocks because, um, aftershocks were happening, uh, every couple hours. Um, so we'd be in this destroyed building and, and the whole building would start shaking. Um, you know, and we'd have to run out and then regroup and then go back in. And so, you know, it, it was just stress, like to the 10th degree, every moment of, of that deployment. And I, I really got to understand quickly, uh, the burden of command because I was, you know, in my job, even now, um, I'm a jump seat fireman. I mean, I'm a driver. I drive the heavy rescue, but I'm considered a jump seat fireman. I don't have rank. Um, I am the senior man at my firehouse, but I don't have an officer rank. Um, in USAR, we don't use rank. We you, you, you promote through experience. So I had earned that position, but I, but I, I got to feel the burden of command very greatly because I really thought that one of those aftershocks was going to bring that building down and I was going to end up killing some of my members, you know? But I remember thinking in my head that not that it would be okay, but that it would be okay if you follow my meaning because they were going after live people. You know, these weren't bodies that they were, they were trying to dig out of the rubble. These were people that were viable victims. They were talking to us and, you know, there was nobody else coming for them had we not gotten them out. Yeah. I mean, it was the, it was the, the prime example of what we're told, you know, if there's nothing to save, there's nothing to save. If there's, if there's something to save, then you throw everything at it. And, uh, and we did, and it ended up, you know, great, uh, great success story. We come home and, you know, we get, we end up get, getting seven people out of that, out of that, just that one building and then two other people out of another building. So we end up saving nine souls while we were there. Um, that's a significant number, um, looking at collapsed building type, uh, an earthquake style, um, rescues in the female world you know nine people on a single deployment is is a pretty pretty impressive number so we came home we were happy you know and everything was normal when i got home and i was you know i was but the stresses of life continue on you know i was i had been in haiti for 21 days and uh i get home i walk through the front door you know i drop my Drop my bags on the ground. Hey, honey, I'm home. And, you know, it's she's like, oh, yeah, you're done saving the world. Well, you know, the pool pump's busted. The dog needs to go to the vet. The yard needs to be mowed. You know, all that shit still needs to be done, even though you're off saving the world, you know. So you're back. Good. I'm glad. But get to work, you know. And uh, over the next couple months, I just started to – it started up slow. It was, you know, I began to lose – motivation and, and, and doing things that I normally like to do. Um, then 
I started getting irritable. Then, um, you know, I started to have some, some trouble sleeping and it, it started in, in the ways of, of bad dreams. Like I, I would, I would wake up, you know, screaming or, or, um, I would fidget a lot in my sleep, like try to, I would bring my hands together or, or rub my hands on my arms or whatever. And, and my wife would ask me while I was sleeping, what are you doing? And I would tell her, I can't get the blood off me. I can't get the blood off me. And I was dead asleep. I don't remember telling her any of that. So it started to show in little aspects, but you know, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm just tired. I ha I'm not sleeping real well. I, you know, I would tell myself all kinds of things. Um, but it started to progressively get worse. And then I, uh, had a small back injury. I tweaked my back a little bit and uh, went to the doctor and uh, was given some, some pain meds. Um, got home and uh, started taking the meds regularly. Like I'm supposed to, I wasn't abusing them, but I said, man, I, you know, fuck here it is. This is the, this is the fucking ticket. Why, you know, why haven't I found this earlier? I'm, I'm productive again. When I take these meds, I feel good. I want to engage people. I, man, this is awesome. You know, this is giving me my life back. Well, the pills ran out like, like they normally do. And the doctor said, okay, you're done. You're, you don't need to start taking Advil. Um, well, I got, I jumped on, jumped on the computer and found, you know, pills that I could buy on online at the time. And, uh, so I started self-medicating and, uh, I was doing great. Um, things were, you know, things were, were starting to feel better, but I was still dealing with, with sleep issues, with bad dreams. I was still was starting to have some marital problems. Um, it started to really, really now take off and start to surface. Um, that went on for about uh, two years. Uh, Haiti was 10 uh, in 2012. Um, I was working at home, uh, trying to get my house prepared for a, for a hurricane of all things that was coming. And, uh, I fell from a ladder here at my house, here at my house. Um, and I fell 32 feet and I landed when I landed, I landed in my neighbor's yard and I landed, he's got all pavers in his yard and I landed standing up like flat footed standing up. So I completely like shotgun des destroyed my left, my left femur. Um, where it comes out from the hip bone and turns into the femur, completely destroyed it. Um, and then I had five compression fractures in my lower back and some other traumas to the rest of rest of my body. So I was messed up, man. They told me I'd probably never, uh, never ride a fire truck again. Um, you know, and, and all that goes with that. So, uh, I get out of the, I get out of the medical rehab center. I come home. Again, I'm given some pain meds. I start taking the pain meds um, and start doing what I have to do to, to get back to the firehouse. But my usage of the pain meds are, are increasing. And then long story short, I end up going to see a pain management doctor and they give me a ton of, ton of pain medication. So now I'm off to the races. Um, that went, I started self-medicating heavily, heavily self-medicating, um, 2012 and that went till 2017 until I said, 
I'm going to, I'm going to end this. Uh, you know, I'm miserable. I'm not doing any good for my family as, as I talked to you about earlier. At that time, um, I was receiving medication from the doctor. I was receiving uh, 98 milligram Dilaudid every seven days, along with 120, 80 extended release, 80 milligram Oxycontins. Um, I was going through all of that within three days. And I was delauded i was crushing and mainlining i was uh you know into uh, iv drug use instead of taking them the way that that i was supposed to take them so i had a major major opiate addiction um and it, you know it just kind of took me out and, and i i point all the fingers really kind of start the trigger was haiti you know the gun the 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 thing that got fired and turned me into this person was was Haiti culmination with with falling from the ladder you know um the biggest problem was when I came home from Haiti and started realizing I was having issues um I blew them off and uh you know my support structure wasn't the healthiest that it could have been either because I was starting to have some marital issues and she just didn't, um, you know, at the time she didn't really feel like listening to my bullshit, you know, and uh, it's just the way it turned out. But I, I didn't really have a support, a support system because I had nobody to go to. Well, I did. Honestly, I had somebody, people I could have gone to and probably they would have told me the same thing because now that I've, come this far, I found out that some of these people that, that I would consider my support system, they were dealing with the same issues, but not saying anything. So it was a, a handful of us that were dealing with issues from Haiti, trauma from Haiti, um, but not, uh, not talking to each other about it. So I probably could have went to somebody, but back then I was younger. Um, I thought I was more bulletproof so to speak you know i was the guy like i'm sure you hear it a hundred times on this podcast nothing like nothing bothered me you know going on calls seeing blood and guts uh doing field amputations none of that shit ever bothered me so i couldn't imagine that this was haiti that was taking me out but it was and uh i never i never asked for any help i never i just tried to self-medicate and the more i self-medicated the better I felt, so the more medication I would use on my own, you know, um, and that it be, it started as a great thing, but it ended being a huge part of the problem, you know, um, as normally happens with medication. But it, uh, you know, I look back on it now and I, I feel, obviously, I feel good about my journey and, and I've, I've been able to get clean and, and I haven't used I haven't used opiates and, and, uh, I just, you know, we just, uh, I just celebrated six years of being, uh, being clean. So, um, that's a big milestone for me. I'm pretty happy about that, especially with your rate of relapse for, for, uh, for opiate use usage. But I, I, it, if there was a time where I didn't 
I don't remember who I was before that incident. You know, I, I look at pictures of the before and the after and, and the man that I am now. And, and it's funny because I don't, there's times I don't really recognize that young, smiling, naive kid uh, that went to Haiti. You know, I, I know the guy that came back, but I don't necessarily know the guy who went anymore, you know. And uh, it was, in my opinion, it was a, a bunch of things that just came together in a perfect storm. You know, it was the, it was the, the stress and, and the burden of command while being over there. Um, it was coming back and going right back to work. Um, not talking about my issues, having issues here at home that I came home to. You know, it was just a bunch of things that came together all at one time. And I'm sure that there's many people that will say, well, kid, that's life. You know, you got to get past it. And to a certain extent, I agree. But um, at the time, I didn't have any tools to help me just get past it. You know, my tool was shut up, take the drugs and just get on the truck and keep your mouth shut, you know. And that uh, that compounded my issue greatly. So now I try to, you know, I try to look at things constructively and, and say that maybe maybe it all happened for a reason. Uh, maybe it happened to put me on the path that I'm on now. Um, you know, I don't necessarily travel and, and lecture and travel and speak about a, a lot of this stuff, but I've done a few podcasts before this one now now yours and and you know like i told you when when we first started talking i have no hang-ups anymore about talking about this aspect of my life um i don't wear it as a as a badge of shame anymore you know i did for many years i was i was very very much embarrassed about it because you know i i was you know i used i used to use derogative terms about myself i'd call myself a, you know i was a junkie and you know i would i would use just scathing remarks about myself but i try not to do that anymore i mean it pops up every once in a while but um i don't look at it as a as a badge of shame anymore i try to try to put a different spin on it and i'm i'm open to help anybody that i can that that may be possibly going through this i i try to really engage them and and, and reach out and, and try to do something for them that i can because i realize how how crippling this, you know, how crippling addiction and PTSD can really be, you know, and listen, I'm not, the addiction side of it is not so strong with me anymore. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, James, I still have my days where, where I think about it. And I still have days where I wake up in the middle of the night dreaming about doing dope and, you know, and it scares the shit out of me. Um, but I'm able to get past it, you know, um, and I still have days where I'm, I get depressed and I get down and I get feel like shit. Um, but they don't, they don't stick with me as long as they used to now because I, I do have tools and I have, I've, I've gotten myself some people that are ride or die people now that I trust that I can go to or that I can call in the middle of the night and say, Hey man, I'm having an issue or, um, for me that that is big. And then I try to, I try to stay busy. You know, um, boredom for me was always a, uh, a a bad thing. And it's funny, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that, you know, a lot of stuff we can take back to early childhood traumas and, and experiences. And 
while I was going through all of this in, in one of the one of the facilities that I that I went to um, to try to get me back on track, they did a pretty in-depth uh, psychological profile. And it was a give and take between you and a, and a psychologist. And a lot of the, the stuff that they came up with, like my boredom thing, um, they came up with the fact that, you know, when I was a kid from, from being a young age, from the time I was six years old until I graduated high school, I, I was on my own during the day. I would go to school and then I was a latchkey kid. At six years old, I would get dropped off by the bus, walk a mile home, let myself into my house. And because my mom was working two and three jobs, so she wasn't there. I would have to make myself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you know, provide for myself until she got home at the in late hours. So things like that, they determined was kind of what puts me in a position where boredom is is a huge trigger for me. They kind of broke a bunch of different things down and it was a it was a really enlightening study on yourself. You know, you got to see kind of what makes yourself tick. Um so I used I usually try to kind of analyze that kind of stuff on my own if I feel a certain way. And then the last thing that I do to try to keep myself on this straight and narrowish <laughs> is uh, I had a addiction counselor that told me he, he he used to preach that if you can determine what is it in your life specifically that causes you to use what feelings or what triggers or whatever you want to call them cause you to immediately go for the drugs. If you can figure that out, you can get yourself straight. And I've contemplated and thought and beat that up for a long time. And I think I have a pretty good handle on, on some of them, at least the ones in the forefront that would push me to go back and that's how and i utilize that to stay clean to this day and that's how i've been able to get you know six years of no relapses and and not going back um so that's kind of my my stick well firstly mate thank you i mean this is this is the kind of courageous vulnerability that we need. There's going to be people from the outside looking in that know you as, you know, Timmy Gleason, the, the rescue, you know, guru and, you know, who was deployed on Task Force 2. And that's such a two dimensional look at our first responders, our Navy SEALs, you know, insert alpha revered profession here. But behind the facade, you know, and it's not a facade, behind behind the, the front-facing part of us is the human being inside the uniform. And the number of people I've heard that have had this kind of, you know, experience. And you talked about the perfect storm. So when you look back, you know, as as you kind of touched on, very, very young, you know, single parent family at that point. So many people are like, well, why wasn't I good enough for my father, my mother? Why didn't they stay? Why was I adopted? Whatever it is. And that's a very powerful emotion. Now you're six years old on your own. There's that higher, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, security. How, how secure does a six-year-old really feel in a home yeah. on their own? You know, now fast forward to modern day firefighter. The term overtime whore is used a lot in fire service. I used to, you know, be like, oh, why, why is money so fucking important to you? Then you kind of get educated through a project like this and you go, oh, mm -hmm. when you're alone with your thoughts, you 
they come back. But if you yep. say, I'm just going to sign up for another 24, you don't have to think for that next 24-hour period. Right. So I would argue that's probably a part of it too. It, it's a trigger for the boredom remembering as a kid, but also the accumulated trauma. I mean, even pre-Haiti, that was 15 years in the fire service, 15 years of shift work, 15 years of accumulation of calls on top of the childhood element. So now, you know, is it simply reminding you of the six-year-old or is it also you don't want to be alone with your thoughts? And that's where, you know, the, the kind of dampening down with the opiates came. Yeah. Yeah, man. I mean, it, uh, the one positive or a few positive things I, 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 I've been able to get out of all of this is that I have been able to do exactly what, what you just described. I have been able to look at, you know, um, I know this is going to sound stupid, but I look at the, the situation I'm being dealt with at the time. I kind of imagine that I'm holding it in my hand and I'm looking at all aspects of it. Um, and I see, well, when I look over here, it causes me to feel this way. When I look over here, it causes me to feel this way. And, and I'm able to kind of analyze, analyze my feelings that way. And, and that's one of the tools that, that they've given me um, to help me process through, through the addiction side of it is looking at those, those different feelings and understanding why you're feeling them. And then also allowing yourself moments and and i don't mean when i say moments i don't mean days i mean moments allow yourself to feel them okay i feel like i really want to bang a bunch of drugs right now i want to shoot up okay you realize you want to shoot up take a second allow yourself to think about it to feel it but then think about what that is going to do you're going to do that let's say you go through with it you're going to do that then what so now you find yourself looking at the then what and it's it, it's the step process that gets you through that, that the next thing you know, the 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 want to shoot up is no longer there. You, you've processed it through and, and you're moving on. And, and it, when I first started doing it, it would take some time, you know, um, I would feel it for a while. But now it's it's hardly ever comes. But when it does come, I allow myself the, the 30 seconds or 45 seconds to to say, OK, Tim. You, you woke up this morning, you feel like you want to shoot, want to shoot dope or, or how great it would be to shoot dope right now. Let's, let's look at that for a second. And I take the second to look at it and I go, you would become a stark raving fucking mess, right? Maniac. If you even entertain doing that one time, and this is what would happen. So it doesn't take more than a minute or two to go, all right, let's go. Let me just get on with my day and the feeling's gone, you know? And, uh, that tool has helped me a lot and it, it's, that's been given to me through, you know, some of the people I've been able to speak to and, um, it's helped for me. It's helped. Um, and, and the last thing that I truly feel that helped me get back, um, on, it was ultimately the, the last thing that I needed to get me back on, on the path of going back to the firehouse. Cause I went away, got a little bit of help, um, and then came back. And when I came back, they assigned me to a 40 hour week because that's, that's the, the policy in my department. I was assigned to our logistics, um, our logistics department, uh, logistics division in our department. And, uh, I wasn't riding a fire truck. I wasn't allowed to teach. I was basically folding t-shirts and washing vans, um, until the city psychologist 
signed off and said that I was capable of going back to the firehouse. But what do you think that was doing to me while I was washing vans and crews of people that I know were passing by watching me wash these vans? I was becoming embarrassed um, and it was starting to take me out rather than help me. So, um, you know, I ended up sitting down with a chief fire officer in my department. Um, he's very smart, very smart individual. Um, he, he's also heavily involved in, um, medical, uh, medical work outside of the department. He's a, he's a cardiologist outside of the department. So he knows, you know, medical stuff in and out. And I uh, sat down with him and he said, uh, listen, what do you want to do? What, what's your, what's your end game? What, what, what's your plan? Do you want to just continue to do dope for the rest of your life or for the rest of your time on the job? Because if you do, we'll figure something out. We'll keep you here in logistics, folding t-shirts and washing vans. You will never get back on a fire truck. You will never teach again. You'll never do any of that, but you'll still be able to collect a paycheck. Um, but then he said, however, I think you'll probably only last for about four or five more months before you end up moving on or we find you dead. He goes, if that's your game plan, that's fine too. He said, or do you, what do you want to do? Because, and I said, well, ultimately I want to get back to the firehouse. And he said, okay. And for some, somehow he just figured out how I tick, you know, and he said, uh, this is what I want you to do. He said, I want you to sit down tonight. I want you to go home tonight. And he goes, I want you to make a list from your least important to your most important. Um, come up with five or six things. And, uh, you know, important things that you want back, your important haves. And uh, he said, if you're willing to follow what I'm going to project, he said, uh, you'll get back these things. He, he said, this is what we're going to do. He said, we're going to, you're going to go back into rehab. And I said, no, forget it. I'm out. I'm not going back to rehab. Um, I'm not going back into a facility. And he goes, no, nah, nah, let me finish. He goes, I didn't say you were going to go back into a facility. He goes, you are going to sign yourself up for outpatient rehab. He goes, you're going to work here during the day, go home, go to outpatient rehab, and then go home at night and report back to me in the morning. He goes, you're, you're not going to be stuck in a facility. He said, you're going to be going home at night. He goes, but you are going to go through another round of treatment. Um, he said, during that round of treatment, I hold the right to drug test you um, anytime I want, as many times as I want here. Plus, you'll be drug tested in the treatment center. He said, if you're, if you're clean for two weeks, I'll give you back your first, your least want. What is that least want? I said, I want to teach again. I want to get back to teaching. And he said, okay. He goes, as it, as it happens, the department is sponsoring a uh, vehicle extrication class. He said, if you can stay clean starting tomorrow for two weeks, you're clean and you, and you complete all the assignments that the facility gives you. I'll put you in as an instructor in that class. So there was my first benchmark. I was able to hit it. And my second benchmark was, you know, I don't remember exactly what it was at the time. I was able to hit that. And I kept, every time I hit a benchmark, obviously I, I felt 
confidence. You know, I felt, uh, I felt good about myself. So it pushed me to, to, to move forward, you know? Um, and he figured out the type of, the type of mentality I have. I, I always challenge myself and, I, and I'm always very hard on myself to be a little bit better. So every time I got myself back, one of those, those, you know, wants, um, it made me want to push to the next one and then push to the next one. And before you know it, within two or three months, I was back to the firehouse, but had he not gotten involved, I can't say that I would have, that I would have stayed clean. You know, I think I probably would have relapsed very early on and I would have just, who knows what, because I, I was, I wasn't thriving. You know, I was, I was reporting to work every day and, and washing vans and not feeling any better about where I was in life. You know, I, I used to say to myself pretty regular, man, I gave up dope for this bullshit. At least with dope, I felt good. You know, I don't, I don't have dope anymore. And now I'm fucking washing vans, you know, as people are, are walking past me. So he was able to figure out for me what worked and, uh, he put it to me and it, uh, you know, I credit him with a big aspect of, of getting me clean, you know, staying clean has been on me. Um, but, but getting, getting, helping, getting me clean was a big, he was a big part of. So that's ultimately what's helped me the most in, in my journey with this, with this side of it, you know? Amazing. Well, when you think about it too, it was your captain that caught you just in time for the suicide attempt. It was your chief that was yeah. the right fit for you at that moment. And this is it. It's such a, a you know, unique thing. We can't look at mental health as a one size fits all. Everyone's going to be different. You know, EMDR might work for one person, you know, a service dog might work for another. And even mm -hmm. just to circle back, just touch on this as well. When you talked about your exposure to opiates, had you had a somewhat Disney life up to that point and you'd been a thriving accountant, you may not have been addicted at all. And this is a big part right. of the drug conversation. You look at Ohio, you look at West Virginia, there's a huge amount of industry that collapsed in those areas. And then there's a multi-generational impact of poverty and some other areas, you know, mental health, depression. And so, you know, is it the drug? Yes. But is it also coupled with the mental health perfect storm as you said you know where now that drug becomes an escape and it could be alcoholism it could be social media overtime you name it but the moment that we just say oh we just demonize demonize that drug or demonize addicts which is even worse yeah we're pigeonholing and rather than look at you know the human being and how did you get to that point whether you're a functioning firefighter is hiding their alcoholism or whether you're an opiate addict that's under a bridge shooting up it's the same journey that we've been on and the only answer is compassion doesn't mean that you just let them walk all over you but it's right. seeing them reaching out to lift them up but then also not blanketing with you know as we talked about before a hey call me if you're struggling or you know sending you off to a facility expecting you to be miraculously cured 30 days later so i want to applaud both of the two men in this particular conversation that saw you and actually you know address the problem i think it's beautiful and obviously applaud you for the strength that you had to execute what needed to be done to get yourself out of your addiction yeah thank you and you know there were other there were others along the way that that contributed their piece to it you know that i i I needed at the time. Um, 
that I haven't mentioned here, but, but, um, the captain and the chief are just two that, you know, they did, they did play a significant role, um, in keeping me here, you know, um, the captain most definitely because it started with him because had he not just figured it out, you know, I, we were, we had a, a, a night the other night at the firehouse where we were kind of sitting out back, uh, bullshitting, uh, in the middle of the night, we had come back from a run and we, we both just kind of sat down and, and we we're talking about it. And I asked him, I said, what is it that, that you keyed in on that you knew, you know, what, how, how did you know? And, uh, he goes, man, I, I can't, you know, I can't say anything specific other than I heard it in your voice. He goes, I heard that you had just come to the end of your road, you know? And he goes, and I was worried and, and, you know, I, I acted on it and, uh, and he was right, you know, and it's funny because he, he's a he's a big guy. He's a, a jockey kind of football build kind of guy. And he goes, I remember telling the guy because a couple of the of the younger members from my firehouse that I that I had kind of bonded with um, came with him. You know, um, he said, I remember looking back at them and telling them there's a very good chance when Tim opens the door he's going to punch me in the face. Just let it go. Don't, don't intervene. Let him, let him do whatever he's going to do. Cause he's going to be angry that we're here. And, uh, it's funny because I remember looking and seeing them walk up the walkway to my front door. And I remember being like raging pissed. And when I opened the door, you know, I, I pulled open the door along the lines of like, what the fuck are you guys doing here? Why are you here? You know? And nothing came out. Like I, I opened the door and just locked eyes with him and, and I could see he was emotional. And then I immediately became emotional. And he said, Hey, listen, I don't know how I know, but I know it. I, I know what I know. And I'm, I know that you're planning something that is going to have very long lasting effects. And I want to get you some help before you do that will you come with me and let me get you some help? And as I said, I was standing there wanting to rip this guy's head off. And I'm not, I'm not an imposing man at all. I wanted to rip this guy's head off, but I just looked at him and I put my head down and I said, yeah, I'm ready. You know, at that point I was, at that point I can honestly tell you, James, that I was uh, as low as any, my spirit was as low as any human being could be. I mean, I, I had no, I was void of any feeling, emotion. I, I, I had nothing left in the tank, nothing. And uh, surprisingly, I, I could be a very stubborn bastard, but surprisingly, I, uh, I didn't even argue. I just said, all right, let's go, you know, and, uh, in a day or two, I was off to Maryland to go, uh, enter a facility and, uh, you know, had he not had the courage to, to say, no, I got to do something about this. I, I probably wouldn't be here, you know, and I, that, that's not to say I didn't have other friends in my life at the time that noticed that I was shitting the bed, so to speak. 
um, because a lot of a lot of people that I'm still close with did. They knew I was in a bad spot. They knew I could no longer hide that I was an IV drug user anymore. I mean, my arms were a mess. My you know, I had the 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 telltale pick marks. You know, where you're picking at your skin from the opiates from the from the histamine histamine release of the opiates where I'd pick at my face or I'd pick at my arms. I mean, I, I looked like, like a druggie. Uh, I was down to about 120 pounds. I was pale, like Dracula pale. Everybody knew I was sick, you know, but the problem the the issue was they all knew I was sick, but they all knew my former character and my former character was, he's going to pull out of this shit. This is Tim, Timmy we're talking about. He, He's going to get out of this. He, he'll be fine. He's, he's going to pull it out, you know? And, uh, I wasn't, I had, I had lost the ability to pull it out, you know? So I credit him with a lot. Uh, he, he, uh, he didn't have to do what he did. And, you know, I, I to his credit, he did. And, and I'm still here for it, you know, because of it. So, I owe him a pretty big debt that I could probably never, never repay him fully. The only way that I can really repay him fully is by staying, you know, staying on the straight and narrow and on the clean side. And, you know, I've told the guys at my firehouse when I, when I went to go away, when I, I went away for the first time, I stood them all in front of me at, as the senior man. And I, you know, I explained to them, they all knew, but I explained to them anyway, what was, what was going on, what had transpired and that I was going to go away to get help. And that, you know, when I came back and I was clean, I would stay clean and I, I would use them as a, as a, as a means of staying clean. And, and they own a proportion of that too. There's ultimately I'm selfish in my clean time. I'm selfish because I don't, I do it for nobody but myself. Um, but there are people and, and aspects that own portions of it too. And, and they own the crew that I work with currently at my firehouse. They're, they're a big part of, of my clean time because I, I don't want to let them down and I don't want to be a burden to them. And I don't want them to have to bury me or, or bury one of us because I fucked up, you know? So I, uh, I use them as, as inspiration to stay clean. They're, they're one of many, but ultimately, as I said, I stay kind of selfish with it and I, I don't do it for anybody else but myself. That's the one thing where it's, where it's really okay to be extremely selfish is, is clean and so, and sobriety, you know, do it for yourself for nobody else. Well, you said, I don't want to be a burden to your crew. So you're going to stay alive that perfectly illustrates the difference between the broken mind that you were in and the healthy mind that you are now. Of course, we don't want to be a burden. Of course, we don't want our loved ones to find us, you know, after a suicide or an overdose. And this is a beautiful example of that. I think one of the things that needs to also be infused into the mental health conversation is that post-traumatic growth, how once you've navigated that darkness, that becomes a strength now, you know, and you can be a beacon of light for others. I just want to hit this before I let you go because I know we've gone past two hours, but it's, there's kind of a an important value to this. Haiti was so traumatic and was a big trigger for you on, in this path. 
you come out the other side, you have sobriety, but then we have Surfside right on your doorstep now. So talk to me about that event and talk to me about that strength now that you had to not allow that to make you spiral yet again. So Surfside happens. Um, We respond, you know, um, it's in our own backyard now. So it's, it's, it's even that much more. The difference, I think that, well, this is the first starting point of the difference. If you follow me in the, in the, in the path of Surfside, the first piece of it is that I think we all pretty much knew as a rescuer that we were going to a situation where there was not going to be anybody alive, you know? So we went there with the full potential of doing complete search and rescue, doing what we had to do if the situation arose. But I think for the most part in our heads, at least I can speak for mine in my head, when I got there and saw the type of collapse it was and saw the, the rubble pile and saw what was going on. I said, there's nobody that's going to be alive in this, you know? So you already begin to shift your, you know, your, your mindset of, all right, this is a recovery and, 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 you know, I, I can do this, you know? Um, I'll tell you later, ultimately what put the cap on it for me and made it a successful mission for me. Um, but, that gave me the opportunity in some way, once I kind of changed my mind frame a little bit, um, it gave me the opportunity to look at it again, as I told you before, to kind of hold it in my hand and look at all aspects of it. And I was able to put kind of a different spin on it. Um, I was able to say, all right, as a, as a, as a leader on this team, what can I do using this, using this, uh, deployment? I can, I can use it to, teach my younger members how to look at pat, uh, collapse patterns. I can teach my younger members how to work alongside the cadaver dogs. I can teach my younger members just how delicate you have to be when you dig out a body. So I, I went into a different mind frame, so to speak. You know, I went into, I went into a mind frame of we had a job to do and the job was very, very important, but there was a nurturing kind of um successful teaching side or showing side of things too you know um i was also able to spend a lot of time at night talking with different members the you know younger members that might have been having having issues um we did have you know a a a situation that hit very close to home with surfside in that um one of our firemen his child and ex-wife lived in the apartment and were killed in the collapse. Um, our team, uh, the gentlemen, the guys that work with him, uh, we dug them out. We found them and ultimately dug them out and, and laid, uh, helped laid them to help give them to him to lay to rest. You know, so we put some closure on it for him. Um, the crews that, were intimately involved with the dig out of those bodies. They had some hiccups along the way. Um, I was able to put myself in a position where I could help them process some of those thoughts. So it became just kind of a different deployment for me, so to speak. Um, Two things happened 
that ultimately put the cap on it um, for me in, in, in making it more of a success than, uh, than you know, a, a deployment that caused the issue. One of them was we were kind of winding down um, towards where it was getting kind of close to the end where we were not going to be able to do much more for for the people here. I was standing, uh, we worked from, our shift was from 12 noon to 12 midnight. And then we were relieved by one of the other teams. So I was standing, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of the shift. I was standing on, you know, the, a big mound, a big rubble pile and <clears throat> looking out over this beautiful beach because the beach was a hundred yards from, from the rubble pile, you know. Um, I'm looking at beautiful Miami beach, beautiful ocean, palm trees, the wind is blowing and I'm smelling, you know, the smells of a, of a rubble pile where a bunch of people have died. And I'm looking at TVs and iPhones and jewelry and shoes and all this mountainous mounds of materialistic bullshit strewn all over for acres and I'm standing there and I'm looking at it and I just had a moment where I said kid you got to start living a better life because look look at all this shit that we all struggle for that we you know the iPhones and the and the computers and the the cool sneakers and the, you know, all the shit that we struggle for and, and buy and need to have and work for and, and try to get none of it means shit. Look, here it is, dummy. Look at it. All these people are gone. None of this shit is going to matter. It's going to all get thrown in the garbage. All the people that own this stuff, they're all dead. Wake up. You got to have a different, different perspective on life, man. So that was the first thing that kind of, got me in a, I know it sounds a little kooky, but it got me in a different mindset. And then the last thing was we finished, <clears throat> we finished operations at Surfside proper. However, there was another location that we were take not we, but the, that were, that they were taking all of the um, building material and all, you know, they would re we would reduce the pile at the Surfside location, we'd looked, you know, as we were searching, that stuff would get taken to an offsite location and dumped or, or, you know, piled up again. I don't want to use the word dumped, but it would get piled up again. Well, we went over there, a group of us, it was myself and five or six other people. The rest of the team started breaking down equipment um, and breaking up our camp there at Surfside. Well, we, six or seven of us, went over to this other location every day and we would sift through the spoils to find secondary and tertiary remains. Um, you know, it's just like doing a secondary or a third or tertiary search on a house fire. We did the primary. Now we were coming back and doing the secondary. Um, we knew that we were looking for remains of <clears throat> of um, 96 people, roughly, um, is how many were were um, killed in, in the collapse. We knew we had found a bunch of people, but we hadn't got confirmation yet back from all of them. 
um, from the from the county morgue. So we knew when we got over there, we were still looking for confirmation and remains of like 13 people. So our job was to go over there every day and for 12 hours a day, sift through stuff that we'd already gone through to look for tissue, hair, bone, any teeth, anything that we could, we could do a DNA test on. Um, it was grueling, grueling, nasty, very hard work. However, I felt very um, honored that I was given the opportunity to, to do that. So the ones that went with me, um, they took it on, they took on the, the, the job also at, at a very um, uplifting, uh, you know, pace. They, they, they were very honored to be there too. So we decided all of us that we would not quit until we found all 13 people. And, uh, you know, we would work for as long as we had to, we kind of came together and made that pact. Well, you start being what it is after about four days of work, the bosses came out and said, listen, you're done. Uh, whether you find everybody or not at the end today on Friday, at the end of business, if you found them all great, if not, we're done, we're shut, we're shutting down and we're going home. We're done. There's nothing more we can do here. We begged and, and pleaded for more time, but they told us, no, it is what it is. And, and at, you know, six o'clock we're shutting down today. So we searched and searched and searched and, Within the last 20 minutes of being there for the day, um, there was, we knew we were missing still one person. We, we, we had, re we were missing the remains of one person that we hadn't found anything for them. It was a female. And uh, there was one section of the pile that I wanted to go through just one more time because I, for, for some, for some reason, I just was getting a feeling in that area like there's 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 got to be something still here that we're missing so i grabbed one of the guys that i'm very close to he's a fireman at my firehouse um and i said listen we only got about 10 minutes left they're going to pull the plug on this i said let's me and you run over here real quick climb up on this pile and, and dig around and see what we can find i said i just got a feeling his name is david i said dave come with me i just got a feeling and uh we ran over there while the while the group was cleaning up all our tools and stuff like that and uh, we climb up on the pile I tell him, I go, why don't you start over in this area? I'm going to start over in this area. And uh, we started digging. Within 45 seconds to a minute, David uncovered a full lower mandible, like lower jaw bone uh, with the teeth still intact. Um, but it was just the lower, the lower jaw. And it still had some tissue on it. And, um, you know, it was for that for what it was, it was a huge score, you know, um, it was something to be very excited about. So we bagged it. We, you know, we, we took it over to, to the forensic people and then we were called off. We were told you're done, start cleaning up. We're going home. Um, and we were pulled off the pile. We went home the next morning and four o'clock in the afternoon, the next day we got confirmation that that jawbone that we found was was the last was the last female that we were looking for so we found maybe not whole but we found remnants 
of all 90 plus people that were missing in that building, we were able to bring closure to their families by finding every one of them. So that finishing on that, on that helped me tremendously because I can tell you in the past, finishing on a downturn on a deployment um, has not done good for me in the past. But uh, this, this helped me process a lot of what we saw and what we did over there as, as a complete win, you know. So those two events, I think, is what, what made this deployment completely different than, than other deployments. So that's what I've been able to put together from, from, so it was, it ended as positively as it could end for those poor people. It ended because we were able to bring all of them home, you know? Well, I'm so glad I asked that question. I mean, that, that again, you know, carries us through to, to modern day and it, it, you wouldn't have been able to be there. You could, wouldn't be able to have the desire to do the things that you did on that pile, even though it was a recovery, had you been, you know, in a state six years prior. So for people listening, like you talked about your phone number, but let's just, just do the uh, the social media side. So if they want to reach out to you, if they want to, you know, learn more about where you're teaching or they want to contact for a personal reason, where is the best place online? Uh, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. Um, and I check both of those regularly. You uh, put in my name, Timothy Gleason, and I should, I should pop up. Um, I'm also a full-time instructor for, National Rescue Consultants, NRC. Um, you can find me. You can find me there as well. Well, Timmy, I want to say thank you. I mean, like I said, we could have talked rescue for two and a half hours, and that would have been a fascinating conversation. We didn't even touch on Katrina, for example. However, there's so much importance to hearing these stories from people that are revered in our associated professions, but when they hear the vulnerability. To me, it dismantles that myth that we were raised on. I mean, we're basically the same age. So this kind of facade of masculinity that, you know, men don't cry, rub some dirt in it, bullshit. The story, you know, the, the journey that you've been through, the highs and the lows from the, the rescuer standpoint and the human standpoint, I think are going to resonate so deeply. So when you talked about honoring the the gesture or the the life-saving event that your captain initiated i think this is one of the reasons that you do pay it back through your teaching through your service continuously as a firefighter but also through podcasts you know like callies and, and this one where you're reaching out to people that are struggling that feel that they're alone and feel that they're being a pussy when the reality is that i would argue almost everyone has a degree of suffering at one point or another so i want to thank you so so much from the bottom of my heart for being basically so courageous with this interview and telling your story today. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. I've had a great time. Um, I really, it's been easy to do with you as a host. So thank you for that. Um, and by all means, if, if anybody, please, if anybody reaches out to you through the show that, that would like to talk, um, but they just don't know how to go about it, please give them my information. Um, I'd be more than willing to talk to anybody um, that is suffering or that that 
perceives themselves to maybe have any type of problem. I, I can't say that I'll be able to solve it for you, but I'll, I'll, I'll help and I'll, I'll try to get you the help that you need. Also, James, if you ever need anything as far as the show goes, please, by all means, uh, reach out and, and I hope that we are able to stay together and stay in communication together as, as friends now after this. Yeah.